Omega Tau. Science and Engineering in your headphones. Hello, hello. Here is another episode of Omega Tau. This time we have something about aviation again. Um, specifically, I visited Adam Spink at Heathrow Tower. You remember Adam from our episode a while ago about the London Air Ambulance, where I first chatted with Neil Jeffers and then we talked with Adam Spink about the air traffic control perspective. And in July, I was in London and I got together with Adam and visited him on the tower. We chatted about especially how Heathrow optimizes the throughput because Heathrow is a very busy airport and there's lots of interesting things going on to make sure they have um, or they can have as many movements, takeoffs and landings as, as possible. So very interesting discussion here. Then, as it turns out, uh, Adam is also one of the volunteers at the uh, RIAT, or RIAT, Royal International Air Tattoo in Fairford, the largest military air show in the world. And as it happens, I was there this year and he was there as well. And so we got together again uh, on the Tower of Fairford and talked a little bit about, um, you know, air traffic control and air show organization. So that's in part two. Um, so I've just stitched these two parts together. All right. So um, nothing else to say, I think. Um, so we can just get started with uh, Adam's introduction. Okay. My name is uh, Adam Spink. Uh, we've spoken before yes. at the Air Ambulance uh, Omega Tower podcast, but uh, I'm a air traffic controller at Heathrow Tower. Uh, I've been here now for 21 years. Hmm. Uh, this is the only job I've ever done. Mm -hmm. Before I always say to people before this job, I was a paper boy. Uh, that's my <laughs> only other employment. Uh, so I'm, I talk to aircraft uh, mm -hmm. from the control tower at Heathrow, but uh, I also work in our operations department working on new pieces of equipment, uh, new procedures, development and research. Yeah, and we're going to talk about both of these things, and mm -hmm. we're going to start with the operational aspect now because we are actually on the tower yes at heathrow sitting in front of a spare well, who, who, what what position would this be here this is it was well identified this is actually designated as the spare <laughs> desk okay. so we have uh, four desk control desks around this area of the control tower and this is a dedicated spare in case of unserviceability on another desk mm -hmm. it has exactly the same equipment in exactly the same layout so a controller, if necessary, could just unplug from one desk, plug mm -hmm. in here, and everything is already set up. Mm -hmm. And so um, that means that uh, the various different roles, like, for example, runway, tower, mm -hmm. ground, clearance, I guess, they yes. have the same setup of stuff. Yes. They, they, well, they have slightly different setups, but this setup has the most of everything. Right. Okay, comprehensive. So, yeah. so we, can, yeah. we don't have to use all the equipment right. for some of those roles. Yeah. And, and how, if somebody would move from another space to here... Then they're filling a role, let's say approach or mm -hmm. tower. Um, well, approach isn't here. Um, yeah. Tower. Um, how would they port their frequency connection? I mean, do, how, do, how does the frequency they talk on end up on this desk? There's a comms panel just here. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. this has all the mm -hmm. fre radio frequencies. Right. Mm -hmm. It shows the the ones in gray are already... Uh, selected in another position mm -hmm. so but you can override that yeah. so if we had to use this spare desk uh, operationally i could just plug in right 
select the frequency I needed, and, and you're and there. That's it. So it's just one button press. Okay. All right. And uh, which roles are here on the tower? I just said that approach isn't. They're yes. probably yes. somewhere else in a dark building somewhere. Yeah. So so approach radar are at uh, our control center at Swanwick, yeah. which is near Southampton on yeah. the south coast of England, uh, approximately 60 miles away. Uh, so 80 kilometers, 90 kilometers away. Yeah. Um, and we have just the control tower here, aerodrome control, as we call it in the UK. Mm-hmm. So we we will take control of the aircraft um, from about eight to 10, 12 miles out on approach when they are already lined up yep. and at their minimum separation. So the approach radar will set all that up, hand the aircraft to us, and we'll control them down the approach, clear them to land when they vacate the um, the runway, and then we will control them on the ground until they park and departures uh, in the opposite direction. They yeah. will call up clearance delivery when they're still boarding their passengers. Yeah. And um, the, the aircraft or the flight crew will then get their clearance, their, the departure route, the, the transponder squawk code, um, any flight plan queries or slot delays, uh, any other um, coordination like that. When they're ready for push, they'll be transferred to the appropriate ground controller, depending on exactly their location on the airport. And then they will call the ground controller for pushback. The ground controller will give them pushback clearance. Uh, will then give them a taxi clearance when they call for taxi. Yep. And then when they're approaching the the end of the, the departure runway, they'll be transferred to the tower runway controller. And and then the tower runway controller will determine the order of departure. Yep. They will We call it marshal the aircraft in the holding area. Um, mm-hmm. Near the runway to to main to achieve that order, and mm-hmm. then line the aircraft up on the runway, clear them for takeoff, and then when the aircraft are about two, three, four, five miles out on departure, they will be transferred to the departure radar controller, yeah. who again is sat in the Swanwick. control center at Swanwick. Yeah. So for the uh, aviation geek kind mm-hmm. of person, mm-hmm. it's tower, ground, and clearance delivery Correct. that are located yes. here. Yes, um, and. In terms of actual people, um, in, at Heathrow, usually you have one arrival and one departure runway. Mm-hmm. And although they are both the responsibility of the tower, it's probably two different frequencies and two different yes, people. Yes, unless, so on a, on a night, in the middle of the night, there will be one controller. Mm-hmm. But during the period where we are busy, so from 0600 in the morning to around 2300 at night, Each runway will have its own dedicated frequency and dedicated yep. controller. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, I think everybody knows, if, you, if only from the various computer simulations, um, that there is this challenge of um, air traffic control of having all the aircraft coming from everywhere and then fiddling them into a kind of a single thread mm-hmm. onto the runway, which mm-hmm. is what approach does, right? Yes, yes. Um, what is the kind of key challenge for the tower guy the challenge for tower is there there are probably two main challenges for us and one of those is is the reverse of what you just said is is departures the mm-hmm. departure runway it's our job to depart the aircraft as quickly as possible mm-hmm. um, and that will depend on many factors so we have to, depending on the size of the aircraft, the wake turbulence that it yeah. produces off the wingtips, we have to provide greater or lesser space behind it, mm-hmm. depending on 
the lead aircraft and the follower yeah, aircraft in the difference in size the difference basically. in size so there's the the wake categories and and separation we need to apply we also need to apply uh, route separation so depending upon the route or the the direction of turn after mm-hmm. departure so if you had two aircraft the same size two a320 aircraft mm-hmm. there is no wake separation required between those two on departure mm-hmm. uh if these two departures turned in the same direction, they were both, let's say, for example, they were both turning south mm-hmm. towards Paris, then we have to provide two minutes between those two aircraft. So the two the minutes, two the minutes, first one gets airborne, then yeah. we have to wait for two minutes before, we, before the second one gets airborne. So that's the minimum required spacing that isn't kind of extended because of mm. wake yes, reasons. Correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. However, if they were turning in different directions, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. we provide one minute. Mm-hmm. So... If we, if we remove the consideration of wake vortex for the moment, mm-hmm. you could have a list or a, a queue mm-hmm. of 10 aircraft. Mm-hmm. If five are going one way and five the other, that's mm-hmm. 10 minutes worth of traffic mm-hmm. because they're all one minute mm-hmm. apart. If they're all turning the same direction, mm-hmm. it's 20 minutes. It's 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. So, or they, you could have five turning left followed by five turning right, mm-hmm. and that's 18 minutes. Yeah. So, so it's, it's a very critical job that the departure runway controller has to marshal the traffic to arrange the traffic mm-hmm. near the runway mm-hmm. to achieve that left right left right left right mm-hmm. left right departure mm-hmm. order mm-hmm. and then on top of that we have the wake turbulence yep. uh, consideration which is the advantageous way of dealing with that is grouping them together so you have a group of medium aircraft a320 737 then followed by a group of mm-hmm. heavy aircraft triple seven seven four sevens and then possibly at the end you have an a380 and then you start with the mediums again mm-hmm. and, and build up and it's and it's more efficient if you group the same categories yep. together and then on top of that you might have departure slot times which are are mm-hmm. handed out by by Eurocontrol and the the big uh, flow management center in brussels mm-hmm. and those are um if you've been a passenger on an aircraft and the pilot comes on the the pa and says oh we have an air traffic control slot delay of 20 minutes This is this is uh, what I'm referring to. So we get given a 15 minute window for certain flights within which to get those flights airborne. And the, the idea there is to keep aircraft on the ground, um, not burning fuel, uh, because uh, the the destination airport might be busy instead yes. of flying holding. Yes, preference. either the destination airport or, or the other or, or a, a piece of airspace yeah. on the, on yeah. the journey to yeah. the destination. Yeah. 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 So each one of those areas of airspace or sectors yeah. will have a mm-hmm. an hourly capacity. Mm-hmm. And if this big computer looks at all the flight plans and the cruising speed and the f- the filed flight level yeah. and um, the route, and will determine that at, in this hour. The capacity of that airspace is is 40 aircraft per hour, but there are 50 aircraft expected. Mm-hmm. So it will give the last 10. Mm-hmm. It will delay those to the next in the hour. Next hour the, yeah. in, the intention of that is, if you if you imagine a piece of airspace has a peak and trough mm-hmm. like sine wave of demand as it gets busy, then quiet, busy, quiet. The idea is to chop the top of that yeah. peak off and right. put it in the, tr- right. the trough yeah, to, yeah. to level it all out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so that's the reason for slot times. Um, yeah. And and that's another consideration for yeah. the departure runway controller. Yeah. So there's there are differing demands. Mm-hmm. You might have to compromise your overall departure rate to ensure your aircraft that have slot times get airborne right. because if they miss their slot time, they might get an hour's delay. Yeah. Whereas if somebody... If he goes in the order and you delay another one, it's only one minute yeah. or two minutes delay yeah, that yeah. the other flight will pick up. So yeah. there's constantly that yeah. uh, calculation about the overall best departure order. So 
going back to the original question, that's one of the main challenges. Right, yeah. The other main challenge we have... B before you go yes, there, yeah, yeah. Uh, is this optimization computer-driven or in the head of the controller? We have a level of optimization going on uh, before the aircraft starts. Mm -hmm. So the, the system, the, the flights, the airlines will file what we call target off-blocks time mm -hmm. uh, into the, the, we call it the ACDM system, the Airport Collaborative Decision-Making System. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and it very much like the system I described just now about the aircraft in the air and Brussels sorting it out. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, a, it's a mini version of that, but just yeah. looking at Heathrow on the ground. Yeah. So it knows where all the aircraft are parked. It mm -hmm. knows which runway is being used for departure. It knows how long it takes the waiter, to get there. how long the aircraft takes to taxi, and yeah. it's done by aircraft type. Right. So right. we'll say a seven four seven for that stand to that yeah. runway is ten minutes, but yeah. a triple seven is nine minutes. Yeah. But a triple seven flown by a certain airline might be eleven <coughs> minutes because their standard operated procedure means their start checklist is longer. Or so we can get slower. down yeah, taxi yeah. slower. Mm -hmm. We can get mm -hmm. down to that level of detail. Mm -hmm. So wow. the system should know if the data is accurate. Right. Yeah. Um, the picture of, of the next 30, 40, 50 minutes of traffic mm -hmm. at Heathrow. And again, assuming the aircraft pushback when they say they are ready for, for pushback or, or they, the aircraft are ready when the airline says they will be ready, yeah. which is another issue. Right. Um, <laughs> but the system is then working out. It knows the weight turbulence category. It knows the left or right turn. And then it's developing the, the best, mm -hmm. in air quote marks, mm -hmm. departure order. And then it's then working back using those same times, the taxi time, the pushback time, the start time, to tell the clearance delivery what's called the target start approval time. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, so the clearance delivery will be using those times. Yeah. The system doesn't know everything. It yeah, doesn't yeah. know the weather. Mm. It doesn't mm. know that the aircraft next to that has gone te tech with a tug broken down behind it, so it can't push back. Right. So the human still needs yeah. to be involved yeah. to... Yeah. to um, provide that last level of, of finesse yeah. um, but then when the aircraft are taxiing out the situation here is generally so fluid with so many factors that by the time the aircraft get to the runway that theoretical best sequence is unachievable mm -hmm. now obviously we're all working hard to, to minimize those variables and, and there is a future development yeah. uh, program to try and systemize more to provide greater predictability yeah. but at the moment the aircraft are taxiing out and the runway controller is only using his or her brain mm -hmm. to work out the best order okay mm -hmm. so it, it starts off being computerized but mm -hmm. by the time as it a baseline happens, yeah. as a baseline yeah. it's generally mostly if not all human mm -hmm. driven okay I, I hear that it sometimes happens that airlines cheat in terms of claiming they are ready and stuff so that I, I was in the cockpit at some point when I experienced something like that. <laughs> You'll have to tell me the exact airline later. It was um, also not in Heathrow. It's all right. You don't but care. It has, it has been known. Um, however, to be honest, most of the flight crew who come into Heathrow, they know it only really works If, yeah. if they're honest. Sure. Um, and we can see out of the window here, we can see a lot of the aircraft. If somebody calls up delivery and I stand up for my seat and I'm the delivery controller and I look out and I see there's a jet bridge still attached, <laughs> I see there's a catering truck still loading food, <laughs> yeah. I will yeah. say, no, you're not ready. You know, yeah. I can see. Report ready. Unfortunately, and I'm not going to say which stands, you can't see all the stands <laughs> from the tower here. Uh, so, and, and some flight crew do learn which stands they are. But I'm sure but, there uh, is an internet forum where they yeah. exchange these yeah. things. Um, yes. <laughs> um, and uh, yes, yeah, so, so there, there is that. 
um, that issue. But generally, it's yeah. it's it's not so much of a problem. Yeah. Uh, Heathrow is is scheduled to over ninety nine percent of its c- declared capacity. Yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah, it yeah, only yeah, yeah. works if everybody works towards right. the same aim. Yeah. 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 So the second challenge. So the second challenge is actually related to what we've just been talking about. It's the challenge on the ground. Heathrow, for the number of flights, is a is a very busy airport. But in terms of area mm-hmm. of ground space, um, it's very it's actually very small mm-hmm. uh, compared to to Parashal de Gaulle or Schiphol or even mm-hmm. uh, well, it's it's relatively comparable Schiphol to Frankfurt. Half Netherlands. Well, yes, as um, everybody as knows, knows where taxi is. Yes. Um, <laughs> so and and. The number of stands is very low compared to the number of flights. Mm-hmm. So invariably, and, and just looking at the radar here, there's an aircraft here with an H on the label. That yep. means a hold. That mm-hmm. means that stand is occupied. Mm-hmm. So he's come off the runway and the stand is occupied by another aircraft. Mm-hmm. Now that might be five minutes, it might be 10, it might be 30 minutes. Um, and so we are trying to push the maximum number of flights through for a given number of stands if the aircraft he's waiting for has got a slot time or has gone technical or um, is uh, for some reason isn't pushing back on time the passenger, there's a passenger lost and his bags are on the, fl- on the flight so they're needing to get the no, yeah. bags off so all sorts of those those frictions can occur which means aircraft come off the runway and they can't park yeah. so then the controller has to decide where do I taxi them where do I hold them mm-hmm. it's going to block a taxiway Am I going to need that to use that taxiway? Mm-hmm. And so, it, so it, as soon as you start getting to that point where aircraft are holding, it can very quickly snowball yeah. and, and jam the whole airfield. Yeah. So you have to think very carefully about to plan ahead. If, if the next three or four aircraft are okay, their stands are vacant, that's fine. But then you might find the next, the one after that and the one after that also have occupied stands. Mm-hmm. Um, and and not all aircraft can park at all stands. There are size right. restrictions. Yeah. Yeah. There yeah. are um, terminal ca- specifics. Yeah, terminal specifics. There are there yeah. are immigration specific. Right. So so yeah. for UK domestic flights, yeah. can only use certain stands yeah. on Terminal Five yeah. and at Terminal Two. Um, American flights generally use certain stands because yeah. of the extra security yeah. um, uh, that the TSA mandates. So yeah. so there are very there are a lot of limitations on which stands aircraft can use. Yeah. So the, the the situation on the ground at Heathrow is is can be very critical, and it's and it's um, exaggerated by the amount of towing that goes on. Mm-hmm. So British Airways, as we're looking out here, Marcus to the west, we can mm-hmm. see Terminal Five. So yep. British most of the British Airways flights at Heathrow fly from Terminal Five. Yep. That's on the far western edge of the airfield. At the far eastern edge of the airfield is British Airways maintenance areas. <laughs> so you can see the problem. <laughs> yeah. So we have a lot of towing to yeah. and from yeah. the, the eastern end to the western end and vice versa as aircraft come from maintenance and yeah. hangars uh, to the terminal and vice versa. Yeah. Um, and they can cause a lot of uh, congestion just because a, they tend to travel more slowly than aircraft taxiing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they can often be against the natural flow mm-hmm. of aircraft around right. the airport. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the yeah. arrivals coming off the arrival runway to, to park right. and their departures coming off the terminals to the departure runway, it tends to set up a, a generally a nice flow around the airfield. Yeah. Uh, and the towing aircraft can work against that sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the other main challenge, I'd mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what kind of tools 
does the controller have? We're sitting in front of a bunch of screens, mm -hmm. and I see you use electronic uh, stripes as yes. opposed to paper. Yes. Yeah, electronic strips. Uh, strips. Yeah. So um, in in the old days, and and still current uh, equipment for for many, especially smaller control yeah. towers, each flight is represented by either a paper strip in a coloured plastic holder, yeah. or as we see ahead of us on these two screens electronic representation of those strips again with a colored border yeah. um, and and we have blue borders orange brown borders and there's a black border now um, we like to think of air traffic controllers as being intelligent people um, however the way we remember are the brown aircraft point towards the brown earth yeah, and the sense. blue aircraft yeah. point towards the blue yeah. sky I mean, it so, would be unintuitive if it were, if it were different. Yes, yes. And the black? And the, the black is a vehicle. Oh, right. Okay. So <laughs> why it's particularly black, I'm not sure. Yeah, okay. But, uh, and the, so the, those colors correspond to the labels on our ground ah, radar. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the blue, air, blue labels are departures. The brown labels are arrivals. The arrival labels also have the stand number at which the aircraft is parking. Oh, yeah. And as we speak, we can sing a Singapore aircraft vacating the runway with another H on it. Yeah. So that, uh, yeah. that's an occupied stand yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And this is a normal secondary radar that uh, uh, triggers the transponder. Yes. So, so, so the the again, uh, as I'm sure all your listeners know, aviation loves acronyms mm -hmm. and abbreviations. This isn't a ground radar to us. It's an ASM GCS. It's an Advanced Surface Movement Guidance Control System. All right. Yeah. Sure. Otherwise known as a ground radar. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so <laughs> we have primary radar on here. Mm -hmm. There are yellow blobs yeah, moving right. around the screen, yeah. and there's li that's literally yeah. primary radar energy being being um, transmitted yeah. from the radar heads, hitting and or being absorbed by something, and then being reflected yeah. back. Yeah. 1940s technology, yeah. effectively. Yeah. Obviously, there's yeah. a lot of computer processing in the background, yeah. and then overlaid on top of that are the labels, the identity of the aircraft, and that is secondary radar. Yeah. So we we provide the location information by triangulation. So we have about 30 and receivers oh. around the airfield mm -hmm. and they will pick up the MODES transmissions from the aircraft, the secondary radar transmissions, and we will triangulate. So the primary radar isn't really used in, in except for drawing the yellow blob. <coughs> Correct, but then it also con so there's a data fusion engine right. working mm -hmm. in the background. Mm -hmm. So if if the system detects I've got a MODES and a transmitter somewhere in location A, and I've also got a big yellow blob of primary radar energy also in location A, yep. then I'm going to assume that's the aircraft. Mm -hmm. yep. If they are some way separated, then there's more doubt mm -hmm. about is the aircraft in the primary location or is it in the secondary mm -hmm. location? So, um, th And that's, that's displayed to the controller as, as a change in symbology. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. So you might be able to see there's a plus like mm -hmm. a, a vertical yep. and horizontal cross. Yep, yep, yep. And that means that the system is confident that that's an aircraft. Oh, yeah. You might be able to see this one is yes. just a, an X rather mm -hmm. than a, mm -hmm. a, a diagonal cross mm -hmm. rather than a vertical and horizontal. That means the system isn't quite certain of yep. that location. So that's just running off mode S. It's an aircraft about to park and the label's now gone because it's crossed the line onto the stand from the taxiway. Ah, and then you don't care anymore. And we have a, a diamond symbol without a label yeah. to say that that is an aircraft. Ah. But because it's parked on stand, the controller doesn't need to know about right. it. So we remove the label from the display. Mm -hmm. to But you could have them with, with a mouse and see it anyway, yeah. of course. Yeah. Yeah. You could interrogate yeah. it yeah. to yeah. see. Yeah. yeah. Um, and mm -hmm. then the other main screen we have is the air radar picture. Yep. 
that we see Heathrow in the middle. It displays all the the runway uh, center lines, yep. the approaches, and the approaches, yeah. And we can see the aircraft coming in, yeah, uh, from from the west and departures taking off to the east towards London. Yeah, right. And so for the landing. Um, so we just talked about the challenge of yes. the departure part. Mm. For the landing, I think the only thing you need to make sure, I'm simplifying, of course, but mainly that the runway is f vacated before you yes. give clearance to the other one. And if, in worst case, go around and then you have work. Yes, yes. So uh, because of, of the, you know, the capacity constraints at Heathrow compared to the demand, we, we generally try to achieve the minimum separation. Mm -hmm. So that could be either the weight turbulence separation, as we spoke about departures yep. before. There are there are distances also to for achieve, approach. also yep. for approach, yep. depending on the pair of aircraft, yep. the categories, and a minimum radar separation as well. If there is no wake uh, turbulence requirement, uh, but generally the aircraft will be positioned at or very close to the minimum required. Um, so so we very often have. Um, relatively late landing clearances being given mm -hmm. to aircraft mm -hmm. um, but it, it, it flight it, it, it's odd you can generally uh, tell when a flight crew or a, a pilot hasn't come to Heathrow before because they might be two or three miles out and they're asking you if they're clear to land <laughs> um, yeah. so uh, we have a, a slight modification on that arrival spacing mm -hmm. uh, where we use something called time-based separation, mm -hmm. uh, which, which at the moment we're the only airport in, in the world to use. So each weight turbulence separation is defined in distance, in miles, yeah. nautical miles. Yeah. So a heavy to a medium uh, will be, let's say, for example, five miles to achieve. Mm -hmm. What we do at Heathrow is we take that five miles And we say, well, in a, in a five-knot headwind, uh, that five miles equates to 120 seconds, mm -hmm. let's say, for example. Mm -hmm. And then if the wind increases over five knots headwind, so if it's 10 or 15 knots, we will reduce the distance to keep 120 seconds. Mm -hmm. So as you, as you imagine, um, if it, let's say, equate it to a, to a car journey. If you're driving past a, a tree on a road at 70 miles an hour, mm -hmm and you're, you're keeping a certain distance to the car in front, that road has a, a certain throughput mm -hmm. yeah. in that hour. It right. will have yeah. 70 cars an hour or 80 yeah. cars an hour. Yeah. If now all the cars slow down mm -hmm. to 30 miles an hour or 40 kilometers an hour, and you keep the same distance apart, yeah, you have the throughput to, of the yeah. road has gone down. Yeah. So that's something we used to suffer with greatly at Heathrow. On a, on a normal I say a normal day, a, a good weather day with five to six knot headwind, mm -hmm. we would be able to land 45 aircraft an hour. Mm -hmm. Those mm -hmm. same aircraft, exactly mm -hmm. the same aircraft types with a 20 knot headwind. Mm -hmm. we because they're, would, because they're, they're moving physically slower, slower over the ground. The ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They still have the same airspeed, but yeah. because you have 20 knots yeah. headwind, yeah. they're flying 20 knots slower yeah. over the ground, yeah. over the runway. Yeah we go from 45 to 40 yeah. or to 38. Yeah, because your, your metric is the distance and not... Exactly. The, yeah. and, mm -hmm. and because, mm -hmm. again, we are so scheduled so close to that capacity, mm -hmm. as soon as we get to around 38 aircraft an hour arrivals, airlines will have to start cancelling flights. Mm -hmm. So that's something, obviously, we do not want to mm -hmm. happen because of the financial cost to the airlines, because of, the, obviously, the passenger experience is, mm -hmm. is, is not good. Yeah. It might mean the aircraft are out of position overnight for the next day's flight. Yeah, yeah. There might have yeah. to be cancellations sure. the next day. Yeah, yeah. So, so we've developed this time-based separation, which takes 
um, the average headwind all the way down the approach. Mm -hmm. It applies that to the baseline distance separation, modifies it to... So effectively, we're translating the distance to the time, yeah. and then we're keeping the time constant yeah. by reducing the distance. Yeah. The stronger the wind, the the more di reduction we can use. Conversely, if the wind drops below a five-knot headwind, so it's calm wind, mm -hmm. we actually provide slightly more mm -hmm. distance than we would have done previously. Yeah. And that's for safety, because the wake that the aircraft generate yeah. does not decay yeah. as quickly yeah. in a calm wind. Yeah. So... Even though we've we've increased our landing rate with introducing the system, we've also reduced the number of wake encounters. Mm -hmm. So on strong wind days, aircraft are closer together, but at the same time separation apart. On calm wind days, they're further apart in mm -hmm. distance. Mm -hmm. um, and, it's and it's calculated for five knots standard day. That's the baseline kind of the is, is five to seven knots yeah, yeah, okay. uh, yeah, down yeah, the approach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and on the radar here, ironically, you've chosen a day which is exactly all almost five knots. <laughs> we have a table on the air radar, oh, which yeah. has, it's just a basic graph. So yeah. we've got distance across the top. And this is the equivalent that the system is calculating. As I said, ironically, it's exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Four mm -hmm. miles equals four miles, five yeah, miles yeah, equals yeah, five yeah, miles. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. So if I have a quick look to mm -hmm. a weather display, it's... Yeah, it's about a five-knot headwind mm -hmm. on okay. the weather. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, you had to... So you developed this uh, thing here? Yes. Uh, well, not specifically at Heathrow. We developed it within CESAR. So that's a European... It's single European Sky mm -hmm. Advanced Research, ATM Research. Mm -hmm. So there's a pan-European initiative with um, air navigation service providers, so ATC companies, um, industry, mm. so companies like Indra and Thales yeah, and Comsoft, yeah, uh, yeah. Frequentis, yeah. Boeing, um, Airbus, yeah. all involved um, and uh, regulators, so the UK CAA, EASA, mm -hmm. Eurocontrol all came up with these various development projects. Mm -hmm. One of them was time-based separation mm -hmm. um, of Nats was a partner in that particular project. So we did lots of simulations based at Heathrow but also based at other, other airports mm -hmm. around Europe um, and Heathrow Airport was so pleased with the with the potential of this system that they paid jointly with Nats to introduce it at Heathrow, um, and it yeah was introduced uh, gosh 2015 I think now mm -hmm. yeah okay relatively recent. And when you say introduced, what what does this entail? Do people have to be trained? Is it a regulatory issue? So there was so th at the moment, looking at the the radar screen, mm -hmm. we've got the line of the final approach the aircraft are following, and then small n lines at 90 degrees almost like marker mile markers mm -hmm. one two four six eight miles ten yep. miles 12 miles out yep. to 15 with training and experience it's relatively straightforward for a controller to judge the distance in whole miles in a distance of three miles or four miles or five miles the controller relatively quickly will develop that skill to judge if they need to achieve five miles, what they need to do and how close that looks mm -hmm. on the radar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The problem is this system might reduce five miles to 4.7 miles. Mm -hmm. And now the controller has to achieve 4.7 miles. Mm -hmm. That's a lot more difficult mm -hmm. to do. And they probably would just achieve five. Yeah. Because it's sure. very difficult. It's like asking you to drive at 52.3 kilometers yeah, yeah. an hour yeah. on, a, on a normal um, speedometer in the car. Yeah. So we can actually see the result of the system here. It's showing us a red line on the approach, mm -hmm. um, and that is effectively... So it's showing us two lines. So the, the radar system is drawing 
the the time equivalent of that separation as i said today it's actually yeah. exactly the same as what it would have been yeah. five years ago yeah. <laughs> but the first line the line furthest that gives the furthest distance is where the radar controller has to aim to put that aircraft or mm -hmm. is, is where the radar controller has to respect that reference marker mm -hmm. and then the the line that's closest to the airport yeah. is the minimum separation to achieve when the first aircraft touches down. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the radar controller is aiming for that one and the tower controller is monitoring the first, mm -hmm. the, 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 the further one. So it's almost like a, a cart on a conveyor belt that's moving yes. in and you're trying to hit yeah. this moving target yeah. with your aircraft to be as... Mm. Okay, that's I get it. it. Yeah. Yeah. And there is some, some symbology on the radar as well related to to this so it actually says above the the aircraft identity it says 4.0 plus 0.9 mm -hmm. and that means that the separation to be achieved at touchdown is four miles and at the moment the plus 0.9 means mm -hmm. that it's 0.9 miles outside of that marker um, because all of this system is taking into account the fact the aircraft will slow down at four miles. Ah, yeah. So that's why we have two lines. Mm -hmm. So the radar controller, by vectoring to the, to the second line, is actually looking to provide that buffer mm -hmm. of when the first aircraft gets to four miles and slows down to find approach speed, yep. the second aircraft is still doing 160 knots. Yep. So there will be a compression, there will yep. be a catch-up. Yep. Uh, until this aircraft slows down at four yeah, miles. Yeah. So that's why we have to provide a different indicator to the radar controller mm -hmm. than to the tower controller. Mm -hmm. The radar mm -hmm. controller is looking at minimum separation plus that compression mm -hmm. expected, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the tower controller is just looking at the minimum separation. Mm -hmm. So in the normal view of the controllers here sat behind us, they would only see one line. Mm -hmm. This has been set up to show both, yeah, just okay. to, to explain mm -hmm. the system. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, one thing that had to be done when this was introduced was to modify the software here to yes. show all yes. the stuff. Yes, we, we brought in new yeah. uh, air right. radar software yeah, yeah. specifically yeah. for that. Yeah. Okay, yes. cool. Mm -hmm. And you can see now the first aircraft of that pair has just touched down, mm -hmm. and now all the indications have gone Are from gone the radar. Away. Yeah, 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 yeah. Although you'd expect that they will begin at the far end again, because now the next one, and we can see this. So these the aircraft that don't have these red lines or other colored indicators... Yeah don't have any wake separation oh, I see. so okay. they only mm. only we only use this system for wake okay. separation at the moment mm. ironically the next pair just at 15 miles now has a green line mm -hmm. which is a different color the the, uh, the original ones are red yeah red is for wake turbulence and green is for runway occupancy so this um this system here this uh, i would imagine that's a 767 and that's another heavy so there's no mm -hmm. wake separation requirement mm -hmm. but we know from looking at the last five years of data that 767s will take, on average, 65 seconds to vacate the runway. Mm -hmm. And the weight separation for this pair is maybe 60 seconds or mm -hmm. 55 seconds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the system is saying, actually, the runway occupancy is a greater constraint than the weight separation. So it's providing a different color marker mm -hmm. because there are different procedures. If, if an aircraft breaches the weight separation... That's quite serious. So we have a steps of steps of actions to take yeah. to reduce speed or potentially even break the second aircraft off. Right. If this if the second aircraft breaches what the system thinks is the average runway occupancy, that's not as serious. It's not a loss of separation. Mm -hmm. I could potentially use a different type of landing instruction or clearance to mm -hmm. the aircraft, um, and it's an average time anyway. 
mm-hmm. yeah. this day might be better than average. Yeah. So, so there's no point in sending that aircraft around at 10 miles just yeah. because the system thinks it's slightly yeah. less than the yeah. average runway yeah. occupancy yeah. time. Yeah. 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 Hence, that's a different color so the controllers know yeah. that it's not quite as serious. You seem to be collecting quite a bit of data over the years mm. in order to analyze yes. stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of data. Runway occupancy time, we we look at, um, especially a, a big thing for us, is, is both arrival and departure runway occupancy time. Mm-hmm. And if certain aircraft or either aircraft types or airlines are, we, we publish mm-hmm. almost like a league table mm-hmm. to airlines of their performance mm-hmm. relative to others. Mm-hmm. So, for example, there might be a, a, an airline that takes 10 seconds longer than others using the same aircraft type mm-hmm. to line up and take off. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we would do in that case is go to that airline and say, is there a reason for this? Can we, can we decide why this is happening? Ideally, we'd want everybody who operates, say, for example, the A320, mm. to be round about the same, given a margin of error. Sure. But if one airline is, is outlying and is, and is 10, 15 seconds slower than everybody else, there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. So we would go, and, and we've actually had examples in the past 10, 15 years of um, it's been found that this airline is using a different style of checklist or a different order um, they might have another briefing or, or, or not select the strobes when they're near the runway, but only when mm. they're on the runway. Mm. So it's another action. And we talk to the airline and say, well, this is, this is causing us a little problem at Heathrow. So, um, and, and same for, for the arrival runway yep. occupancy at the same time. So we talk to the airlines. We try and work out what the problem is. And if there's a solution, we help them trying to introduce it. And then hopefully their runway occupancy time goes back to the mm-hmm. near the average mm-hmm. of, of all those aircraft types. Interesting. Um, and again, on, on the arrival side, we found an airline that had to reduce to 20 knots, I think, before they could vacate the runway. Mm-hmm. Whereas other airlines, like say, for example, were happy to vacate at 30 knots. Mm-hmm. So again, we go to the airline and we talk, trying to discuss, discuss the problem. It's not, it's not punishment. It's, sure. not, it's no. just trying to understand. Because at the end of the day, if that airline has 20 flights a day from Heathrow going into Europe somewhere, then if every aircraft takes 15 seconds more, 20 times 15 seconds actually adds up to two or three movements a day. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, we're down to those marginal gains yeah. that we're really, really uh, looking at at Heathrow. Yeah. So, yeah, there is a lot of data that we record and measure um, and spot trends. You know, if, if for a few months there's a certain airline is, is causing missed approaches because of slow runway occupancy, mm-hmm. we'll go to the airline and, and talk to them. They mm-hmm. might have incorrectly produced maps or charts of the airfield. Mm-hmm. When the A380 started operating in here back in 2007, 2008, not very many of our taxiways had been modified to cope with the A380 in terms of wingspan. And some of the charting providers that some of the airlines use didn't quite have the up-to-date charts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they were rolling further down the runway because they, the pilots assumed that they couldn't use right. taxiway turn-off A when yeah, they yeah. had to use B. Yeah, so yeah, again, yeah, right. it's, it's all that sort of background work yeah, that, yeah. Uh, that I get involved in down right. at the office. And we'll talk about we're trying that. to yeah, yeah, yeah. optimise the operation. Yeah. That's the whole thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. How does all of this change when the weather gets crappy? <laughs> I yeah. mean, in terms of yeah. visibility for the tower people or... Um, yeah, that's probably one of the... No, it's a good question. I'm... I mean, as the, as the weather starts to, to get worse, so the cloud base will get lower, the visibility will, will reduce, we'll get to something what, what ICAO calls visibility to condition. Mm-hmm. So effectively, we cannot, in the control tower as we sit up here, we cannot see the aircraft out of the window. 
Mm-hmm. So that this this room here that is above the in the cloud, but everybody below is okay, and the visibility is maybe not great, but it's okay to avoid collisions, taxiing around, yep. and the aircraft are still doing category one approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a set of procedures where we increase the spacing slightly. We allow more. We we rather than giving a landing clearance when the aircraft is just off the side of the runway. We we put a line up on the ra- on the ground mm-hmm. radar that's further away from the runway, mm-hmm. and then we only give a landing clearance when the aircraft has passed that line. Mm-hmm. And then when the weather gets even worse, we go into uh, the aircraft will start doing category two or category three approaches. At that point, the runway visual range, the visibility will be six hundred meters, five hundred and fifty meters, and then we go into what we call ATC low visibility procedures a set of uh, procedures that, that minimizes the amount of vehicles driving around the airport. Mm-hmm. Um, and we will then protect the instrument landing system to a higher degree ah, because so the aircraft are potentially mm-hmm. doing auto lands right. with zero visibility. And um, with protect, you mean that there isn't anything that drives into the beam or stuff? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So we again, we put up on our ground radar a yeah. map of the restricted areas right. that we mm-hmm. that we are not allowed to give a landing clearance right. if that Somebody's area is occupied there. either mm-hmm. vehicle or, or yeah. aircraft mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Um, and that does slow us down so mm-hmm. we're always trying to optimize our exposure to those conditions so when i first came to heathrow 20 21 years ago we maybe had 200 150 hours of low visibility procedures every year and over the years we've reduced the cloud heights at which we would go into low mm-hmm. visibility procedures because the ASM GCS, the ground radar is is relatively advanced and we rely on it more and more and uh, we've even uh, the, the the method of measuring visibility at, at main airports <laughs> is is uh, transmissometers, runway visual yeah. range so there, there are two yeah. Yeah. Um, pylons about two meters high yeah. Uh, all the way down the runway, three sets for each yeah. runway. Yeah. It's shining a laser from yeah. one to the other. It's yeah. receiving and it's working out what the proportion of light it's yeah. receiving is. It then work, uh, yeah. correlates uh, that to a visibility. Now, ICAO, who sets the standard for, for these readings, has to apply globally. Mm-hmm. So what applies to Heathrow, where these systems get maintained to a very high level and get cleaned every week, the, you know, somebody goes out and polishes the lens to ensure that the light, all the light is is received yeah. that can be has to have the same uh criteria as a an airport which maybe has one flight a day mm-hmm. in the middle of south america or the middle of uh, russia yeah. um where maybe the the maintenance isn't quite as regular mm-hmm. so it has to apply globally so what we did at heathrow we we worked out how much this uh algorithm was costing us mm-hmm. and effectively it could be shown that um, it was un- over-reading mm-hmm. or under-reading, I guess, is the, is the better way of putting it. So Pes- it was it more pessimistic. pessimistic by maybe 20%. Oh, oh, so okay. if the visibility mm-hmm. outside was actually 800 meters, we were reading the visibility as 600 or 550. Mm-hmm. We would be in LVPs. Mm-hmm. We would have delays because of the greater spacing because mm-hmm. of the aircraft couldn't go into the restricted areas. Um, so we went to the UK CAA and said, look, if we prove to you we have a very high maintenance regime, mm-hmm. we have very we clean the lenses you know, every week and we do a lot of data gathering to mm-hmm. show can we remove that modification algorithm from mm-hmm. the system? Can we report the true visibility as recorded by the sensor rather than being pessimistic? Right. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, so through a course of a few years we recorded all the data we went to the CAA and they were happy so we've removed that modification mm -hmm. that and that's pessimism algorithm yeah. and and so now we've we've gone from like i said 20 years ago we'd have 150 200 hours of lvp the last few years we've had 20 mm -hmm. So, so it's it, not because the weather in the UK actually no, improved. No. Okay. No, I was just no. asking. It's not it's not that. <laughs> it's because we've we've reduced the criteria yeah. Yeah. of going into we've removed actually any cloud consideration completely now from going into LVP. Mm -hmm. And we've we called it IRVR credit, so the, the runway visual range system is now accurate and is no longer pessimistic. Right. Mm -hmm. Now that interestingly could potentially create a problem because Low visibility procedures are very precise and very complex. Now, somebody 20 years ago would encounter them for 150, 200 hours oh, a year. I see. Mm -hmm. Now, if Training they only issue. exist for 20, 25 yeah. hours a year, mm -hmm. a controller here, they might not see it for three or four years. Yeah. So we have to do recurrent training, mm -hmm. refresher training mm -hmm. every year now in low visibility procedures because people lose that familiarity because they're not using them very often. But you do that in some kind of simulator yes. that doesn't yes. reduce the capacity. Tabletop here. exercises yeah. simulator. Yeah. Um, and our competency examiners will be very, going into the winter or into the autumn, yeah. into the fall, where which is traditionally when Britain has most of its fog events, yeah. we will go for briefings and, and meetings to discuss mm -hmm. what uh, what uh, low visibility procedures are and how mm -hmm. we apply them. Mm -hmm. And we, we do have a, a screen here as well with a lot of checklists on. Um, so, you know, rather than trying to remember what to do, we can bring up the checklist and we go through exactly what, what that yeah. is. Yeah. Talk a bit about following the greens. Okay, yes. Yeah. So, so at Heathrow we have a relatively unique. There are some other airports around around the world who have a similar system. Um, but during the daytime, an aircraft vacates the runway, and I'm the ground controller. I would say, for example, Speedbird one two three, turn right on Alpha, left on Charlie, right on Bravo, park on stand five three one. Yep. And the pilot will have to get a chart out or look at their moving map if they're in a very modern aircraft right. yep. and navigate themselves. Yep. For a British Airways pilot who's maybe based here, flies mm -hmm. out of here, you know, 20 times a month, not particularly challenging. Although yep. potentially could be if they've had a 15-hour flight and they're very tired yeah. and all the human factors associated with yep. that. Yep. At night or in, in low visibility, I would literally just say to the aircraft, follow the greens to stand 531. And along the middle, the center line of the taxiway are a series of green lights. And whenever that taxiway comes to a junction with another taxiway or a runway, mm. there's a series of red lights across. So what we call a stop bar, a red stop bar. And the, the lighting system will be turned on when we get to twilight or when we go into poor visibility. And next to the ground controller is what we call a lighting operator and that's a dedicated position that's all they do they're not a controller oh they're not even they're not a controller oh, okay. they're dedicated lighting operators mm -hmm. here at Heathrow and they have a big 55 inch touchscreen which allows them to manually control the lighting system and they will literally uh, effectively join the dots they will press each stop bar in turn which then links each stop bar with the mm -hmm. uh, we call it drop the stop bar extinguish the stop bar turn it off and then the green line will go through And the whole system works very much like a railway points system. So oh, yeah. if you have a junction, mm -hmm. only one green route can go through right. that junction. And that and is ensured any, by the system. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And any other 
possibly conflicting right. route will stop with a red bar protecting yep. the left and right edges of that route. Yep. And then if, if an aircraft is going straight ahead across a, a junction and has the green route, once that aircraft is the other side and there's an aircraft wanting to go left to right, mm-hmm. 90 degrees to that route, it will get to that red stop bar. When safe, the, L, the LPO, the lighting operator, lighting panel operator, will switch the route. And then that aircraft has a, has yep. a green route. And anybody following the first aircraft now has a red bar right. in front of them. Yeah. It's like a, a traffic light yeah, system. Yeah. Yeah, 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 the yeah. generally accepted premise around the world is green is go and safe and red is dangerous and stop. Yeah. It doesn't quite always happen like that sometimes. Oh, yeah. okay. but, um, but generally, and, and we do, in, you know, we, pilots are trained and, and encouraged. And should be colorblind. Uh, correct, because of the medical standards. Exactly. So, so if they come to a red bar, they should stop. Even even if the controller verbally has said right. route this way and continue, yeah. they should stop and query. Yeah. Said, oh, we have a red stop bar, yeah. and then we'll yeah. the controller and the lighting panel operator will decide. Ah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, will will the the touch screen show the location of the aircraft? No, no. So okay. so at, that will be a future mm-hmm. development. So at the moment, the touch screen, because of the um, generally what touch screens are now or large monitors are widescreen. And actually, if you look at Heathrow, it's a 4-3 ratio right. airport. Yep. <laughs> it fits perfectly on a 4-3 ratio <laughs> yeah, monitor, right. which, yeah. which these are in front of us. Yeah. The lighting panel is a widescreen mm-hmm. 169 yeah. ratio monitor. Um, and there's a, there's a requirement from the UK CAA that presenting surveillance information, a radar picture, you cannot ah, compress or modify the format. But that is something you know, we're, we're working on in, in the future to, to provide the the lighting status of the stop bars onto the surveillance and and or vice versa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the integration of systems is, is in the future yeah. and, and w- will come. And so the lighting operator might operate the lighting for several aircraft then? Yes. I mean, they basically manage the, the, the tracks. And yep. Yeah, so, okay. so you'll have a ground controller doing um, an area of the ground. So in this configuration, what we call GMC ground movement control. Yeah. GMC3 is basically the the Heathrow Terminal 5 area. So one ground controller is talking to all aircraft in that area and the lighting operator is sat next to them listening to the same radio frequency controlling the same aircraft yeah. or controlling their lights yeah. for those same aircraft yeah. and he yeah. can he can look out so he can yes. see yeah. in green light aircraft yeah. he can yeah. see when they pass the junctions yes. and stuff yeah. yeah okay then it's maybe not so necessary that you have and, it on the and screen and what sometimes will happen is uh, if you're at 90 degrees so looking out of the window here some of the stop bars are in line with uh-huh. us so because they only shine they're bi-directional yeah. not unidirectional yeah you can't see the red you light from here yeah um, but what we do is when we're building a new piece of taxiway the far left and the far right red light we point towards the control tower mm-hmm. <laughs> so we we might not see all the red lights yeah, but yeah. we see the left and right yeah, edges yeah. so yeah. we can tell that that stop bar yeah. is on yeah um, <laughs> interesting and that helps us out the way, out of the window yeah yeah I mean the, the, the fact that you so in since you mentioned the, the railway analogy mm. I know that there are for for signals, there are actually cross checks that when you switch to a red light, there is a sensor that verifies that the red light is actually shining. Mm. Okay, yeah. Because there is nobody who can mm. see it, right? Mm. Here you can look out yes. and and verify yes. that the, the the stop bar is actually yeah. stop showing stop. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. the lighting panel does have a fault indication as well. So, right. so okay. if a, a light fitting is blown, right. this will be shown okay. on the on the system, and yeah. and we can zoom in 
down to individual lights mm-hmm. on the airfield on that system. Mm-hmm. Um, and the air, airport operations building has uh, another one of those panels. Mm-hmm. They don't use it to control the lighting yep. system, but they use it to work out which lights have blown during the day. Yep. And then when it's quiet at night, they'll go out and replace them. Uh, yeah. and do any maintenance and, and whether yeah. preventative or, or reactive yeah. maintenance to the yeah. lighting system as yeah. well. Yeah. So as a controller here, do you have uh, certain positions or do you do everything? During the course of a shift, which will last seven, eight, nine hours, depending yeah. on the exact shift you, that you do, you will generally, on average, sit in every seat oh, in okay. the control tower. Even during one shift? Even during one shift. Okay. So I might come up. Uh, my first hour, hour and a half session will be doing GMC3. Mm-hmm. I'll go away for a half an hour break. Mm-hmm. I'll then come back up and do a, another hour, maybe in the departures runway controller seat. Mm-hmm. Go away, another half an hour, come back. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll do the arrivals runway. Go away for another break, come back up, maybe do clearance delivery or another ground position. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's actually one of the duties of the tower supervisor, who's a controller, a senior controller, but isn't wearing a headset and not talking to aircraft during the shift. But they're running the control tower, the show, um, yep. running the show, and and one of their tasks is actually to to try and keep that rotation going of staff through different seats. If I was to spend six hours in my in my shift with with breaks, of course, yep. but six hours all plugged into just doing the landing runway. During my fifth hour of doing that, I'd probably be bored. Um, I would be tired. Um, keeping, you know swapping around seats and and keeping a bit of interest and doing different tasks through the period of the day keeps you a bit more alert it's interesting because you could argue that if you do the same thing more you get better at it and it seems like you're prioritizing uh, not getting bored slash used to it mm. higher than the potential benefit of potentially becoming expert i would argue that you don't get qualified unless you're expert from the training that sure. we provide. So, so the, uh, the first six months of your training is done at our, our training center down mm-hmm. near Swanwick on the mm-hmm. south coast. You, you arrive at Heathrow and you may spend the next 18 months training with an instructor sat next to you. And there's a level of competency that you have to achieve. Yeah. And if, if there are question marks over somebody's ability, you know, they won't be put sure. forward to qualify. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing is, obviously, I use the landing runway as an example there. The other, the other issue, if it's really busy, is doing ground. If, if you do, even after an hour of a busy ground session with all those factors we spoke about just mm-hmm. now that complicate things, you know you've been working hard okay. and you need a break. Okay. And then yeah. it might be nice, actually, for when you come back upstairs after half an hour is to sit in a seat that, that is considered less complicated. Like clearance. Like clearance delivery. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so just having that change is is yeah. is potentially yeah. A, a, a yeah a good thing yeah um and it just keeps the interest level up a bit and the the fatigue level the down stress level maybe yeah yeah, yeah, yeah and exactly. equalizes it out yeah, yeah. and, and yeah. also there is a is a factor of um personal preference mm-hmm. people generally like to, the type of person who becomes an air traffic controller generally likes to be busy likes to be challenged so The departure runway and the ground seats are generally seen as the oh, yeah. the more preferred, mm-hmm. and the arrival runway and the clearance delivery generally slightly less preferred mm-hmm. because they're less challenging. Mm-hmm. If somebody sits in the the good seat for the whole shift and somebody in the bad seat, then that could, you know, <laughs> potentially cause some issues. Mm-hmm. So so it's always good to keep keep rotating through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I see. So what did we miss to talk about up here? 
Um, um, it might be worth talking about emergencies um, and what point. happens. Yeah. So, so um, we have on our comms panel, we have uh, if, if somebody calls in a mayday or a, a tug catches fire or, yeah. or any, any manner of emergency, the controller in the seat can put something on immediately. So they just need to press a, a tab on the comms panel mm-hmm. and we have two big buttons. <laughs> One labelled crash and one labelled AFS, so that's airport fire service, emergency. Mm-hmm. So if something has just happened, then I would hit the crash button and that immediately connects my headset via phone lines to the airport fire service, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. the airport control centre and the police. And then also on that same screen, I have a, a small aid memoir. So I have aircraft ground incident or aircraft accident. Yep. And then a list, aircraft type, aircraft position, problem, and rendezvous point. For the rescue forces. external fire service and Mm -hmm. and emergency services. If we have an incident at Heathrow, depending on what category we apply, there's a designated response from London Fire Brigade, London Ambulance Service, and and Metropolitan Police, not just from the airport fire service. Um, So I would go through that very slowly, very clearly, because there are people at the end of the, mm-hmm. the phone making notes and then cascading that information further on. And the last point is, yeah, we designate the appropriate rendezvous point. So we have four, one in the north, one in the mm-hmm. west, one in the east, one in the south. We choose an appropriate rendezvous point. That call should take 10 seconds, maybe mm-hmm. 15 seconds tops. And then you hung up. And then within two minutes, the supervisor will use the same phone line on his his or her position with a longer checklist. Mm-hmm. Things like the airline of the aircraft, the flight number of the aircraft, maybe even the persons on board if we know that information. Mm-hmm. And then again, that gets cascaded to all the emergency responders. And, and I should say the crash alarm, if I hit that alarm now, the doors on the fire station go up. Okay. That, that's the doors, you know, the control for the, the doors on the fire stations, mm-hmm. of which we've got two at Heathrow. Mm-hmm. And also, whatever I then say on the phone line is broadcast on PA right. system at mm-hmm. the fire service. So all of the firefighters will be uh, probably doing weights or playing snooker or pool in yeah. the fire station. Beer. Um, well, yeah. Um, um, and as soon as that alarm goes off and then they yep. hear me over the PA, they're, they're running to the fire station, yep. to the fire appliances. The theory being by the time they get to the fire appliance and strapped in, when the heard, engine started, yeah. they know where they're going. Yep. So yep. we don't lose any time. Yep. The emergency line is is almost one step below the crash line. So the emergency line is for something that we think is going to happen. Mm-hmm. So if an aircraft is taxing out and its engine catches on fire, mm-hmm. that is using the crash line. That's mm-hmm. a response to an emergency that's already occurred. Uh, you're expecting an evacuation. Exactly, yeah. So... so if mm-hmm. somebody's coming in and says, we've got a hydraulic failure, mm-hmm. we might not be able to vacate the runway. Mm-hmm. It's not an immediate emergency, right. but yep. it's something that's going to happen maybe an hour away, yep. potentially. We'll use the fire, the uh, emergency line. The alarm is, is not quite as loud. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't get broadcast on the, on the PA in the fire station, but it goes to the same agencies. Even outside the... Outside, and uh-huh. we'll say, okay, full emergency... If, if we think it's a, a major problem. Yeah. So if it's a 777 coming in, two engine aircraft has had one engine fail. So 50% thrust loss. To us, we classify that as a full emergency. Mm-hmm. We would do almost the same 
uh, mnemonic about what information to give. This is the supervisor generally doing this because yeah, it's, it's, not, it's, time it's not time critical. And they include things such as the ETA, the runway we expect it to land on. Um, and then that all gets cascaded out. Um, and, and then we will update those agencies on the progress. If the ETA changes, we'll do another call to say change of ETA. When the aircraft... And, and so then you'll have the fire appliances drive out to the side of the runway and the airport ops vehicles go out to do a runway inspection after mm -hmm. it lands and then when it comes on down the final approach and it's next to land we would do a broadcast on the radio to say you know for, for the fire service and the ops vehicles this this is the aircraft that's the emergency aircraft it's next to land again we do it on the phone call so it's all confirmatory information and then if it lands and nothing happens and it's okay just taxis off and the fire service will follow it to the stand it might stop for a while on a taxiway just to sort out and True. maybe have a chat on the fire frequency yep. uh, between the flight crew and the fire chief um, and if it taxis the stands then the fire service will then call up and, and cancel the emergency if it lands and something happens like a tire burst or, or the, the engine that was shut down catches fire then we will upgrade mm -hmm. to something like an aircraft ground incident so we would we would go in and say right we thought there was a possibility of an emergency occurring and it now has no, so it this, happens, is, yeah. this is the response but the response is so much quicker because we've already done all that yeah. preparatory work yeah. and got people out to the side of the runway yeah. 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 Um, you did witness something like that a few years ago <laughs> yes and uh, we're not going to repeat it here but there was a plane tail on APG with yes. Nick, right? So yes. people might want to yep. check that out yep. to hear your kind of story about that yes. uh, yeah, what problem. Yeah, what such a what a major emergency is like from from the ATC point yes, of view. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, that's a nice connection uh, in this context. Okay, um, I had one more question about this, which I forgot again. Oh yes, exactly. Um, when you press this button, mm. how do the others here get informed? So here in the tower there's an alarm that goes off okay, as soon as I too. hit that and it's yeah. a distinctive alarm yeah. everybody will know that's a crash uh, crash alarm activation so so for example if we're sat here doing one of the ground positions and somebody calls on our frequency and says oh there's a vehicle on fire or or you know we've got smoke in the cockpit yeah. we're evacuating um, and I put the crash alarm on everybody knows something's going on yeah. so clearance delivery will immediately stop starting any more mm. aircraft yeah. um, the the other ground positions you know if they can see it's you and you know i might be waving my hand so that mm -hmm. everybody knows it's me who's mm -hmm. put that on mm -hmm. um or before they answer i might do a quick shout to say yeah. oh there's an agi yeah hit the crash alarm yeah. um the other ground controllers will probably not give me any more aircraft mm -hmm. because yeah. my i'm going to be busy handling yeah. the emergency initially yeah. Yeah. the supervisor will come around and then start taking that information down that yeah. they need to make that second call yeah. um Yeah, it's it's a very distinctive alarm that goes off. Yeah, and likewise, we've we've got a, another alarm for a go around. Mm -hmm. So we, mm -hmm. we're here at Heathrow, just about four miles to the north of us is RAF Northolt, mm -hmm. which is an RAF base um, where the uh, a lot of the communications aircraft, the Queen's Flight, um, mm -hmm. the Royal Flight Aircraft Thirty Two Squadron are based, um, and the the air ambulance, and and they're in terms of major airports, they're quite close. Mm -hmm. So if we have a go around or um, we're, we're, say, taking aircraft off their planned departure routes because of bad weather, mm -hmm. like a, a, a cumulonimbus sail just mm -hmm. over the airfield somewhere, we need to tell them. Mm -hmm. So we have, if we have a missed approach here at Heathrow, we hit that button that's labeled MAA mm -hmm. in that bottom right-hand corner of that unit 
and that will sound an alarm here to tell everybody. It will sound an alarm at RF Northolt control tower. It will sound an alarm down at approach radar at Swanwick as well. Mm-hmm. And RF Northolt approach radar, which is also done by, uh, yeah. by Swanwick, down at Swanwick as well. So everybody knows there's been a Heathrow missed approach. Um, and they enact their procedures to to ensure that the the track of the missed approach path is clear of any conflicting traffic from Ireland, yeah. Northolt, and and other airports around. How often does this happen? We get on if you average over the yeah. year, we get one and a half missed approaches a day. Oh, okay, that many. Uh, obviously, on a day like today, sure. missed, but I won't, we probably won't have any today. Yeah. I haven't yeah. looked at the stats. Yeah. Some days we might have five or six because yeah. it might be windy yeah. and there's wind shear. Yeah. Um, and and gusty, um, so it, you know it, it varies yeah. dramatically depending on the conditions. But on average, it's about one and a half a yeah. day. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. I'm going to press the stop button, okay. and we can go down. So, I have a few more questions um, now that I have my notes again. Before we talk about the kind of um, operations perspective. Um, Obviously, there are other airports in the vicinity here, not just Norfolk, uh, Northolt, um, but there is Stansted, Gatwick, mm-hmm. and a fourth one, Luton. Luton and London City. And London City, yep. exactly. Um, now, obviously, they have separate tower uh, and ground um, mm-hmm. frequencies, um, but they might have a common approach. So does Swanick somehow do this jointly? Yes. Yes. So, so the Swanick uh, control center is is divided up into, well, now actually it's in the same room, but two functions. There's uh, area control on route control, mm-hmm. which is high level yeah. over the, the the south or most of England and Wales, um, <clears throat> and then they have something called terminal control. Yeah, which uh, controls the the airspace in and around London um, up to. Uh, I know if anybody's listening to this that works there will probably criticise me now, but around about twenty to twenty five thousand feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so up to medium level and below and around in the southeast corner of England yeah. uh, is terminal control, and then uh, so they are area controllers with area control ratings, uh, but and then lower down. We'll have the so you have the Heathrow control, Heathrow approach control, Heathrow director, uh, using maybe five consoles. Mm-hmm. Generally, only three occupied, but but they can split off to five consoles, and then literally sat next to them will be the Gatwick approach control, okay, of uh, two or three positions, and then next to them will be Stansted. Yep. Next to them on the left will be Northolt, and also in in the same area will be uh, the low-level radar controllers who are controlling the airspace around Heathrow, but at low level for the helicopters. Right. Um, London City approach as well has sat all very close together to try and um, get that sort of teamwork yeah. and, and reduce the amount of coordination that needs to occur. So there, there is a separate level between high up and the approaches, yes. which is this terminal, terminal control. that I wasn't yes. aware of. Yes. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you when you descend, you're actually handed off to these terminal people first, and yes. then you go get your your specific approach. Yeah. So so the the terminal uh, terminal control will will control you until you almost get to a holding stack, mm-hmm. and then the the respective airports approach mm-hmm. controllers will then control you in the stack, and then uh, so the aircraft will be doing four minute orbits, generally four minutes. And then gradually being laddered down, yeah. And each time one comes off the bottom, 
to be vectored downwind and onto base and onto final approach, then they'll all come down by 1,000 feet. Yeah. And um, one fundamental thing um, that might not be clear to everyone. So on the one hand side, the captain in an aircraft is responsible for everything that concerns their aircraft. On the other hand, they have to follow the instructions given by ATC unless, I guess, they have a reason to doubt that it's safe. So it, it's kind of overriding. Um, now, on the other hand, you're not telling them everything, every little detail. So there are some things they do, I guess, because they just know they have to. Like, for example, if you tell them to turn, then they won't do a 70-degree turn because that's unsafe. Mm -hmm. um, also, there is stuff published in approach charts. So how does how does this work right do you just tell the guy um uh, you know speed bird five you know follow approach such and such and then they just go and do their thing and you don't care how does this fit together how does this work together it, it depends uh very much on which airport you're discussing and uh the the particular geographical arrangements both physical geography and also terrain and also airspace geography. So mm -hmm. as, as you said just now, Marcus, London has a lot of airports around it, and there are more than, than you mentioned that do, that do have uh, aircraft flying in and out around London um, as well. So so London airspace is very constrained. Yep. And at Heathrow, as we've said, the capacity of Heathrow is is very full with with planned scheduled flights. So... It's generally, as soon as you come off the stack, you're under complete human control. Mm -hmm. So uh, we haven't got the luxury of allowing the pilot to fly the published approach procedure. Okay. The pilot or the, the flight crew is, is instructed to fly headings yep. and mm -hmm. descend to altitudes and to reduce and speeds. speeds. Yep. So they'll be given precise instructions. So, for example, we've got four holding stacks at Heathrow, generally one to the northeast, one to the northwest, one to the southeast, one to the southwest. Yep. If you come off the northeast stack, um, you might be given a heading of 270 degrees and a speed of, let's say, 220 knots. And then a bit further on, you'll be given a descent uh, to maybe 6,000, 5,000, 4,000 feet in, in, in steps. Along with that, you'll be given a distance and touchdown. So we try very hard to minimize our impact on the communities that live around Heathrow. So continuous descent approaches are very important for us. And we achieve that by, while we can only descend it, clear an aircraft to descend, obviously if it's safe below that aircraft, if there are no other aircraft there, and also the airspace allows us mm -hmm. to do that. Because the airspace is usually stepped. Because, yep. Um, but what we really don't want is for an aircraft to descend quickly a thousand feet, then level off and fly level for five miles, and then descend another thousand feet quickly and then level off. So by giving the aircraft, the information of how many miles from touchdown they are, the approach controllers are encouraging the aircraft to moderate their descent rate. Mm -hmm. So if, they, if they're at 6,000 feet and they know they're 40 miles from touchdown, they might not descend quite so quickly to avoid descend, level off, descend, level off, which increases noise, it increases fuel burn, it increases emissions. Decreases passenger comfort. Also. Exactly. So, so if they keep a steady descent going, and we keep updating them with how many track miles they are from touchdown, mm -hmm. they can adjust the vertical speed, mm -hmm. you know, on the autopilot, on the mode control panel, mm -hmm. to, to achieve that continuous descent. 
and that's that's the the idea but elsewhere within that so direction headings and descent and speed it's it's very uh, prescribed I've, I've spoken to a lot of flight crew you know in my career and and generally um they all like flying into heathrow because it's it's very you're told what to do yeah, basically you don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't yeah. have to decide is this what we should be doing or is that you're told what to do yeah and and that's the only way at the moment that we can move that amount of traffic mm-hmm. by by training that human very well and putting them in that seat and then letting them make that decision and and having that mm-hmm. um if we if we allowed an aircraft to fly a, a procedure from the stack which of course are published for, yeah. for occasions such as radio fail and and, yeah. and other circumstances uh, it would probably be inefficient because the aircraft would fly big s bends which which they might not need to and also the other aircraft that we would need to put minimum separation between that aircraft flying that procedure and the others we're, we're not really sure exactly what their aircraft will be doing yeah um, it right. might go slightly wide on one turn or cut the corner slightly on another. So we would then have to build in extra allowances and buffers on the separations to account for that. So if we tell everybody to fly fly this heading, fly that heading, descend now, descend to this level, speed 220 knots, speed 180 knots, speed 160 knots, we know exactly what everybody's doing so we can have the aircraft closer together it's all about systemization if everybody mm. flies the same way the same similar headings uh and and uh and it's it's the controllers as well they will generally tend to control using similar techniques yeah um it's predictable it's understandable it's uh it's the only way of getting uh, a, f- a smooth flow of traffic if you imagine you know a, a a road with with a set of traffic lights every few hundred meters if the lights go green you do, and, but you know there's another set of traffic lights in a 200 meters you don't put the foot flat on the accelerator what? i'm and German. accelerating well okay <laughs> <coughs> maybe you do marcus but um you well you could do Only but the then you will then have to slam your foot on yeah. the brakes sure. and like you said passing the comfort and economy just disappears and then you go forwards and then you stop but if you went smoothly yeah then all the other cars around you would also be going smoothly sure. as well and you'd be safer. So it's it's a similar idea to that. Consistency mm-hmm. and predictability is very important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Since you mentioned uh, these continuous descent approaches, um, that is usually not necessarily how it's done, right? Because on when, you've, when you have uh, published approaches, then you usually have checkpoints with altitudes and how the aircraft get there, like whether they, you know, descend quick and then not at all. That's basically their decision. I guess most pilots will probably do something continuous, stylish anyway. Yes, I think now that now that fuel burn yeah, exactly. is, is very important yeah. for airlines that, that I think regardless... They would be encouraged, and and it's yeah. generally habit now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, to do continuous descents. Yeah. yeah, and not use the air brakes if you yeah. can make it. Um, but but um, so but in Heathrow, this is basically something that you, from an ATC perspective, encourage explicitly. Yes, yes, yeah. and and we are actually measured. Uh, I say we. I don't can do the radar control, the approach radar, yeah. but it's a metric against which we're measured mm-hmm. by the airport operator. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we have a target 
of of a percentage of aircraft throughout the day to achieve continuous descent oh, yeah. approaches, and we try and break that, ta- you know, exceed that target every day. So that's also data that's collected yes. automatically. Yes. Uh-huh. Interesting. It, it requires also, by the way, that pilots, that not specifically the continuous descent, but the f- this this tell them what to do uh, to get things smooth and 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 optimize requires that everybody also flies precisely then which i guess with basically dialing things in is not that much of a problem uh, yes uh, there's there is a um and it's also about if anybody or any aircraft is going to act um in a way or fly in a way that we're not expecting mm-hmm. it's important that we un- that we know that in advance so for example a uh, not that we have many flying now, but 757s, mm-hmm. um, great aircraft, love them, but we don't have many now. If they were light, as in weight, when they were landing, mm-hmm. they can fly very, very slowly mm-hmm. at touchdown, maybe just over 100 knots at touchdown. Oh, okay. So very slowly. Yeah. And if we're not expecting that, then that could cause a problem if we've put something behind it yeah, yeah. minimum separation yeah. that might be landing at 140 knots yeah. so the 757 gets to 4 miles and starts slowing down to say 110 knots and the 777-300 is doing 160 knots gets to 4 miles slows down 140 there's still a lot of catch up there so in our AIP entry we have uh, paragraphs such as you know if, if the flight crew know that they are going to be slow Mm-hmm. At landing, the, the slow us. landing, stabilization speed. Please inform us if they need to. We assume all the aircraft will fly 160 knots to four miles, and then they can slow down as required. If they need to start slowing down further out, so at five miles or six miles, again we have a line to say, please tell us when you first contact us, 40, 50, 60 miles out, so we can plan. We can add that little buffer in. Yeah. on the separation <clears throat> because what we don't want to do is to put something as i said minimum separation behind it or in front of it potentially if it's yeah. going to be quicker and then result in a go around yeah because that will be okay it's one go around a day but that's one movement that we've lost in that hour yeah, uh, yeah. but you know and as we already said in the in the air ambulance episode because you're so busy there isn't much uh, buffer to catch up yes you're yes correct then yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. um so if we go back to the capacity, the main mm. constraints um, is basically runway capacity yes. and the associated separation, right? Yes. And then uh, a secondary goal, um, I guess, is to organize everything in a way that uh, minimizes noise to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this has a consequence for you have. A, I think you have a prepared, preferred um, runway direction, right? Yes. So we have something called a westerly preference yeah. at Heathrow. Uh, interestingly we're we're on easterlies today so we're against that preference but yeah. that's purely because of the wind direction and speed yeah sure yeah so we will operate on westerly operations so using runways two seven right and two seven left up to a tailwind of five knots mm-hmm. there is other criteria in there for example a maximum if we have a tailwind of five knots we can only operate with a crosswind component of 12 knots mm-hmm. and yeah. The runway has to be dry yeah. if we're doing a, yeah. a tailwind component yeah. uh, and, and various other restrictions. Um, but that is purely to reduce, in an effort to reduce the noise to the east of the airport, so West London, 
it's preferred at the moment to have aircraft arriving over that area yeah, because they're departing instead of in yeah yeah uh, so we will operate a westerly uh, preference up to a, mm-hmm. a tailwind of five knots mm-hmm. so let's talk a bit uh, more about so your your, your other job right mm-hmm. is is not up there it's down here yes how would you describe that job uh it's basically so yes it's an office-based job um and i work in our operations department in the tower here so i spend a lot of my time working on developing new equipment new procedures for the controllers to follow uh, i spend a lot of time working with various airlines the airport operator the colleagues we've been talking about today approach radar and and the wider controller community down at down at swanick we have very much like flight crew have their pilot operating handbook for the aircraft and their company ops manuals we have our own ops manuals mm-hmm. for atc procedures we have a, a uk-wide document uh, published by the caa the uk caa that we call the manual of air traffic services part one mm-hmm. which applies to every single control unit in the country whether it's swanick to the smallest control tower in the in the quietest airport And then every unit has it, what we call a manual of air traffic services part two, part two yeah. which mm-hmm. is a dedicated document for that unit. Uh, we have ours at Heathrow. I don't know how many pages it has, but it's it's about four centimeters thick. Mm-hmm. So I'm one of the team that, that updates that document by producing instructions for the procedures for the controllers to, to read. We can either update it permanently uh so for example when a new piece of taxiway is built and brought into service or a new stand is built or time-based separation is yep. brought into use we will write a, a long update for the manual and that's a permanent change it will then get put in the manual at its six monthly mm. uh renewal we also have temporary uh procedures that we that we put out Uh, for example, uh, some of our taxiways are closed at the moment because yep. they're being refurbished and resurfaced and new electric cables are being run underneath them. Uh, or there might be uh, the Queen's birthday flypast in London <laughs> right. uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah. So we will promulgate these uh, temporary procedures that the controllers should have to brief on as well. Uh, but they pre- contain actual procedures, so instructions for the controllers to follow. We then also have another level of documentation which are information notices. Uh, we call them opnots or operational notices. So these are pieces of information that are useful, interesting, but not necessary. So if we have a new operator flying in, Beijing Capital Airlines mm-hmm. uh, started operating in last year, we would promulgate this to the controllers to say, new, a new airline into Heathrow, Beijing Capital, we'd have some screenshots Uh, or photos of the livery of the mm-hmm. of the airline yeah. of the color scheme um, of the three letter ICAO designator that we have on our flight plan yeah. and flight strips. Yeah, it's not necessary for the controller to know this because all the information will be up up in the flight data. But it's it will be useful for them to know what the color scheme looked like so yeah, they yeah. could identify the aircraft. Yeah, yeah. Um, or for example, um, uh, I'm trying to think of something else. If there was a Uh, a parachute drop at RAF Northolt mm-hmm. for a, an air, a small air show they have every year. They're keeping out of the way of Heathrow. It's not going to affect Heathrow operations, but we might see it out of the window. Mm-hmm. And if we don't tell the controllers what's going on, yeah, the they'll see, oh, what's that over there? I need to make a phone call to work mm-hmm. out what it is. Mm-hmm. So we, we preempt that right. by giving them the information. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so 
we we have those levels of of documentation and a lot of a lot of the work is is project work uh any project manager would would sort of recognize in in any industry it's developing solutions to problems that we have uh, working with controllers and engineers and safety experts and and for every single piece of um, work or document that we produce in this room we would do a safety analysis yeah. on and that's a lot of our work is is uh, conducting the bow tie safety analysis bow tie. Um, so it's effectively the layout of this on a on a screen looks like a bow tie oh, so okay. so you have a hazard in the middle okay yeah, yeah. and then listed on the left are all the causes of yeah. that hazard and listed on the right are all yeah. the outcomes yeah. and you try and develop mitigations that either yeah. prevent the hazard from occurring yeah. or if the hazard ad- has occurred from prevent spreading. the outcome or, yeah okay uh, mm. so for yeah. example um tcas okay it's mm. slightly more complex because it's a safety net but tcas if if two aircraft lose separation then TCAS is a preventative mitigation, yeah. but it won't stop the loss of separation. Yeah, it, it will just stop a worse outcome. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But uh, preventing the loss of separation might be to ensure that the controller has um, predictive tools to mm-hmm. identify that there will be a confliction in 10 yeah. minutes' time. Um, so it's, it's working through all the possible outcomes and trying to uh, classify which ones are more likely to occur than others. And and then working out what what we can put in place to mitigate either the hazard from happening in the first place, or if the hazard does occur, to stop the the, the more risky outcomes. How do the you more severe outcomes? How do you prevent the it's going to be okay bias, where the person who comes up with the procedure also thinks it's going to be safe? Do you have kind of red teams that then? Uh, yes, uh, I mean we we have a rule that we need three people right. to do on a on a straightforward analysis. We might have three or four people on a really complicated one. Uh, we would have people from our division of safety right. come up from yeah. our headquarters and yeah. run the hazard analysis. Yeah. We would have so we did one about reducing the cloud trigger um, for going into low visibility procedures. We had people from British Air, pilots from British Airways, mm-hmm. British Midland when they were still around, yeah. Lufthansa um, and Virgin, and we had representatives from the uk caa mm-hmm. we had approach radar control our division of safety experts facilitated it and and ran the workshop yep. and maybe a few controllers from this office from the operations office who know the procedure or the proposed procedure yep. inside out but also we then bring people from upstairs who haven't had no exposure yep. to this procedure in the planning stage yep. and expose them to it yep. in the safety workshop so so we can go into great sort of detail about um about that in an effort to mitigate that well yes of course it's fine because i've written the procedure exactly. and, and i know and everybody yes. knows what i know exactly. which isn't which isn't the case at all it's one of these assumptions yes <laughs> yes yeah yeah so um we already talked about a few of these kind of, if you will, innovations, right? The mm. continuous mm. descent we talked about. We talked about the time-based separation as opposed to the distance-based distance separation. Based, yep. um, we think we talked about the recategorization of wake turbulence. No, we didn't, right? Not really. So, okay. so again, that, that corresponded with us upgrading our time-based separation uh, system uh, beginning of last year. So we spoke briefly about the different categories that aircraft yep. are placed in depending on their weight uh, as to how much wake turbulence they produce, how yep. severe that vortex is. Now, with categories, you have to decide on on the boundary yeah. between 
category A and B or heavy, medium. Yep. So Ikeo classify things in terms of heavy, medium, light. Mm-hmm. So three, super. And super now, yes, A380, <laughs> yeah. super. So yeah. four categories. Yep. Uh, the problem with categories is you have to provide the separation for the worst case. So you have to assume every heavy is the heaviest heavy and mm-hmm. every medium that's following the heavy is the lightest medium. Yeah. So in reality... Because every category has a range. Exactly, and so you, yeah. yeah. So in reality, you're probably... It could be argued that you're over-separating... Yeah, mostly. ...because you only have yeah. categories. Yeah. Now, you can mitigate that somewhat by creating more categories. Sure. Yeah. And that's what we in the UK did years ago. We created five categories. Mm-hmm. So we don't follow the same ICAO categories. We have super, heavy upper medium medium Mm -hmm. small light Mm -hmm. or we did have up until uh, Heathrow up until a few years ago and then also it might depend on the on the the mix of aircraft that you have at your airport you might actually want to move the boundaries of those categories so for example at Heathrow the smallest aircraft we have is a dash 8 sure so we don't have Cessna 152 we don't have Piper PA-28 Cherokees yeah, yeah. Um, or uh, Cirrus yeah. uh, SR-20s. Yeah. So we can divide up the, if you imagine the spectrum right, 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 going right. from super heavy on the left to yeah. Cessna 152 on the right. Yeah. You're wasting For a us, lot. You're wasting a lot yeah. if you divide the categories equally. Yeah. So if you divide the categories to a smaller level on the left-hand side of the spectrum on the heavier side t- around to the middle you can be more efficient if yes. that's the only aircraft you have at your airport. Yep. So that we, we did this in in uh, conjunction with Eurocontrol and EASA, and we've in, and Paris have also changed to this wake scheme mm-hmm. called RECAT. stands for the recategorization mm-hmm. of wake turbulence uh, categories. So we have now divided up what was the heavy category. We've divided that into two. Mm-hmm. But it means that the light category is larger. Is inc- includes oh, yeah. more aircraft. Yeah, okay, yeah. So before the light might include up to a very light business jet, yeah. but now it includes up to sort of a medium-sized business or a large business jet. So for us at Heathrow, that means if we had, it sounds funny, but if we had a Cessna 152 departing followed by another Cessna 152, we would have to provide 80, 80 seconds of separation <laughs> for wake turbulence, mm-hmm. which is never going to happen. Yeah. But that's what category-based schemes mean. But that that big category at the bottom, at the light, means that we can divide up the, the heavies yeah. and gain more efficiencies there. So somewhere um, a light GA airport would never do this yeah. because their movement rate would go down. Yeah. Um, the next stage on from that, if you reclassify to the nth degree, is you eventually end up with not having categories exactly. at all. If you have support tools, which we've seen the arrival tool today, yeah. telling the controller, drawing a line on the radar, where to position the second aircraft, you go to what we call pairwise separation. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. each aircraft pair will have a discrete separation, potentially down to 0.1 mile accuracy levels yeah. or 10 second yeah. accuracy or increments. So a... Looking out of the window here, we've got a 777 Cathay Pacific there. Yep. So a 777-200 followed by an A320 <laughs> yeah. might be three miles. Yeah. A 777-200 followed by an A319 might be 3.2 miles. Yeah. A 777-200 followed by an A321 might be 
nine miles. Yeah. So it's it's determining we have a big matrix of at the yeah. moment I think it's about ninety six aircraft types yeah. by ninety six aircraft yeah, types yeah, yeah. with those distances or times yeah. plugged into that table. Yeah. Now a controller can't remember no. any of that. Yeah, but if the so they need the it, computer yeah. tools to yeah. assist them. Yeah. And the computer tools are reaching the maturity level now where we could where we can do that. Mm-hmm. So that's that's going to be pairwise separation is going to be in the future. Ah, for, okay, for future. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So you're not relying on the pilot reporting blah 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 heavy that's not relevant. No. So so what we do though now is we ask the pilots to report their aircraft variant. Mm-hmm. So, because mm-hmm. those separations mm-hmm. are going to be dependent, yep. so most other airports around the world are happy if this Cathay pilot says, I'm a 777. Yep. You know, uh, Hong Kong ground, Cathay 238, a 777 on stand 532. Yep. We don't want that. We yep. want him to say, I'm a 777-200 yep. mm-hmm. or a 777 uh, Because even some in the classification scheme we're working at the moment, the RECAT scheme, some 737 type variants are in the small category mm-hmm. yeah. and some are in the medium category. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's very important for us to know exactly which variant of aircraft type. Doesn't it also depend on the weight is in fuel and passengers? I mean, if you take it really to the yes. end? Yes, it does. The c- the schemes at the moment are based on maximum takeoff weight. Right, okay. Yeah. So, so that's yes, another worst case assumption. A worst case yeah, assumption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Now, if in the future we get to some sort of data link <laughs> that allows the the flight crew to oh, data put a link s- scale in the ground to, where they run. yeah or or some <laughs> method of of the ATC system knowing yeah. the weight yeah you could potentially do a lot of things you yeah. could finesse the the separations you could maybe predict the rotation point of mm-hmm. the aircraft oh, right, yeah. if we knew the D rate and yeah. flex thrust settings of the aircraft yeah. which might help for departure efficiency yeah um, it might be able to predict. If we knew the takeoff weight and the flight plan and the route and the speed and the cost index, <laughs> we might be able to predict the landing weight, right. which would predict the landing speed yeah. more accurately than yeah. using an average. Yeah. Yeah. Once you get into the data, you yeah. can you could potentially come up with a lot of yeah. lot of solutions. Whether that would actually be accurate at the end of the day is 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 another question. Yeah, you run into uh, diminishing returns diminishing at returns. some point. Exactly. The effort yes. regarding yeah 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 yeah. yeah. Um, I wrote down another. A couple of those uh, flow controls. A lot of times we talked about, right? Talked a bit about that. Yes. Yep. yep. Um, you already mentioned this airport collaborative decision making before, mm-hmm. um, and I think we talked about it in the context of um, the, the, the the slots and yes. the scheduling. Yeah. Yep. Um, is that mainly what it's used for? Yes. Uh, so I mean, the name is relatively um, vague, generic. Yeah. Generic. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's it's basically. The main thrust of it is a to yes support ATC in developing that theoretical best departure order, but the thing then the 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 system will uh, publish to the controllers the target start time yep. as we discussed upstairs, but then that time is then published onto a, a portal a web portal for the whole airport community. Mm-hmm. So, for example, British Airways will know when. ATC are planning to allow their aircraft to push back, mm-hmm. which before the system they didn't know unless they called the captain on the radio on the company frequency yeah, and he yeah. might not listen. And the, so, But now they just have to look at a screen and know when it's when the aircraft is, is planned to be starting up. Mm-hmm. Um, and the stand allocators at Heathrow will know the schedule says that aircraft should be pushing back in five minutes. But looking at the screen, it's got a 30-minute slot delay. Mm-hmm. So 
I'm not going to allocate that stand to the aircraft just vacating because yep. you'll have to wait for half an yep. hour. I'm going to allocate another stand and there's one in half an hour that might actually fit quite well on that. So it allows the whole airport community to um, be more accurate. Again, it's all about predictability yep. and planning. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a there's a phrase that we used to you know that, that used to describe how we worked was first come first serve mm-hmm. within a, you know a, a margin of error and, and a bit of altering of the order whether it's arrivals or departures but the the whole network of European sort of air traffic is moving to something that's that's better phrased as best planned best served mm-hmm. so if you mm-hmm. provide accurate data into the network mm-hmm. as an airline or right. an operator or a handling agent then you're going to receive the best service. If somebody is saying, I'm going to push back now, or I'm ready for pushback now, but then doesn't call for 10 minutes, then go to the back of the queue, effectively. And it's all trying to encourage, part of that reason is to try and encourage the human behaviors to actually, at five minutes before, you know you're not ready because you've not finished refueling yet, and the passengers are still boarding. So hold your hand up and say, okay, we're going to be another 15 minutes put the update in then and you'll slot nicely into the order and we can plan around you. So it's all about improving the predictability of operations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You mentioned uh, in passing the word airport safety nets. Mm. You mentioned it in the context of TCAS. So yes, TCAS is what we refer to as a, as a safety net. Yeah. We don't, as mm-hmm. controllers, we don't rely on we it. We don't rely on it. We yeah, try yeah. and avoid the circumstances right. that would trigger it. Right. Yes. Uh, but then if it triggers, we sort of effectively go hands off and yeah. allow the system to work out. Yeah. Because I'm sure you, you can think of occasions in the news where controllers have, have gone in and given an instruction on the radio, but TCAS is giving the opposite instruction and there's confusion. Yeah. So pilots I should always follow. Think of something. Yeah, TCAS uh, <laughs> yeah. is, is quite a well-known example. Yeah. So... Um, so the, the safety nets that we have at Heathrow in, in the tower here, we have a runway incursion monitoring system which will flag on the radar two objects. It could just be a primary return vehicles, aircraft mm-hmm. on the runway at any one time. Mm-hmm. If they're either closing by less than 40 knots or diverging. So, for example, one is taking off and one's lining up behind it, yeah. which is a completely safe... Uh, yeah. situation yeah. then it will just say it will flag up an amber alert mm-hmm. so what we call a stage one alert just highlighting the, the controller you've got two things on the runway yeah. but it's safe yeah. if there's a convergence up of 40 knots or greater so for example if if there's a vehicle on the middle of the runway and an aircraft is coming into land or you've got two aircraft lined up for departure and the one behind starts taking off yeah that's a dangerous situation. Yes. It will go red. The labels will go red. An audible alarm will sound in the tower. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea is that should sound or that should provoke the controller to take action. Yeah. Um, we have mm-hmm. uh, a similar system on our air radar. We, call, we monitor the approach funnel. So if you imagine the, the aircraft coming down the final approach, it's surrounded by a funnel right. that ends at the touchdown point of the yeah. runway. Yeah. And if an aircraft deviates outside that funnel, mm-hmm. either it gets too low or mm-hmm. it gets too high or mm-hmm. too far left mm-hmm. or too far right, again, an alarm will go off in the tower and we have procedures associated with that. If it's a nice day like today and it's maybe two miles out, we would just confirm with the flight crew that they're visual and they understand what's going on 
we'd say you're drifting too far left, are you visual with the runway? If it goes off, if that alarm activates within one mile from touchdown, we send the aircraft around. Mm-hmm. Regardless, Always. even yep. if it's a nice clear daylight today, yep. we yep. would send the aircraft around. Yep. And then in the future, we're looking at developing, along with the, the CESAR initiative that, that I spoke about upstairs, the European-wide um, research and development initiative, um, we're looking at uh, what's called advanced airport safety nets. So we can see a, a time in the future where rather than just using voice to, to yeah. tell aircraft where to go, we're inputting that route into the system. It knows the rules and procedures. Um, if I tell an aircraft to route down a certain taxiway, but the system knows that I've just told that to an A380, yep. and that's not an A380 taxiway, yep. and the wingtips will get too close to the building, it will alarm yep. and say, or it won't, won't even let me do it in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Um, or if, um, if I tell an aircraft to turn left out of the apron to go to the runway and it turns right at the moment i've got nothing to warn me of that in the tower yeah. it's just if i notice it or the pilot queries because yeah. he he thinks oh this doesn't look right yeah. on this integrated system where the, where the system knows the planned route of the yeah. aircraft as soon as the aircraft deviates off the route an alarm would go off yeah i mean this this whole story about data communication to the aircraft yeah. it's 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 to me it's a little bit funny that even in 2020 ish it's still through voice which isn't machine processable and not even machine mm. monitorable um i mean i understand of course that there's a lot of infrastructure involved but um i'm not suggesting that um you should be able to remote control the aircraft mm. Oh, I don't know. I'd, I'd be quite happy with that. Absolutely, <laughs> I'm not surprised. But I understand that this is a little bit further yes, out. Yes, but but yes. but sending and I, and I do know that, for example, I think um, um, clearances for for example for cross uh, Atlantic crossings yep. they're given in written form as data yep. communication, um, and we do that here for our departure clearances. So exactly. the aircraft still at the gate, yep. we send a data link clearance yep. to them to yep. remove the voice yep. aspect. Yep. But 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 for all these things you just talked about, I mean, you could even you can even instead of telling like speaking, you could click click click, and then a synthesized voice would. So uh, what I'm saying is the the interface to the aircraft mm. would remain unchanged, would be mm. voice, mm. but because you're entering it as data there can be more uh, checks and stuff. Yes, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean I'm mean, sure there's research projects for these. Yes, yeah, there are. And, and there are even, uh, I know, even 10 years ago, I, I went to, uh, where was it? I think it was NLR in, uh, in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were working on a voice recognition system. So actually the controller didn't have to input. Sure. They could use the voice to the system and then the system would data link to the aircraft and, and do all the checking. Yeah. So there are, there are lots of um, uh, research projects. I think, um, why hasn't it happened yet? I think partly because of equipment, aircraft mm -hmm. equipment. I Some of my, my job is, is representing the UK on various ICAO mm -hmm. panels in Europe. and um, And we have to think globally again it comes back to sure. what we were talking yeah, about yeah. the equipment and, uh, on the ground at Heathrow that yes here at Heathrow we might be able to do something because generally we have modern aircraft yeah. flying around although looking out the window I'm seeing a Dash 8 just land <laughs> uh, relatively modern but still doesn't have you know data link yeah um, and 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 then I'm thinking of a of an airport that that might have sure. 30, 40, 50 year old aircraft flying in yeah, you yeah. know there are still DC 3s flying around the world sure. in, in Africa so so Developing a standard 
and it would have to be an international standard of format and um, well of that data link I'm anyway. Not so sure the because cockpit, I mean, you, potentially. You, there, there are specific requirements, like for example, required navigational performance that an aircraft yes. has to fulfill to go into certain airspace. You could yes. say yes. to land in Heathrow, you have to. Mm. You know, I mean, yeah, no, it, yes, it's true. But and then there's that balancing act about if. Heathrow is the only airport to introduce that. Sure. Are airlines going to sure. pay that premium? Um, I'm so sure there's your, the your, your, your slots here are sought after. But yes, yeah, I, yes. Of course, I take your but point. But it's a, it's a commercial decision sure, absolutely. Uh, for, for yeah. airlines and, yeah. and uh, manufacturers as yeah. well. And also, uh, I mean, if, if, if such a system weren't used widely, then, of course, it would be expensive. Right, yes. because it would have to be certificated only for you, and yes. blah 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 blah. And and yeah. historically, uh, that has happened before at Heathrow. So instrument landing system as a technology is relatively old. Yeah, nineteen uh, late forties. Effectively, it was it was developed from from some of the landing aids developed in World War Two. Yeah, um, the successor to instrument landing system MLS. in the eighties and yeah. early nineties was microwave yeah. landing system. Heathrow was the only airport to huh. buy that operationally. Uh-huh. We ran it for, what, five, six years. Mm-hmm. It went out of service about a year ago. Mm-hmm. We were the only airport to have it operational because by the time MLS was certified and, and was being um, commercialized, there was a commercial product for an airport to buy, GPS was on the horizon. Right. Yeah. And RNAV and RMP yeah. and PBN and all those acronyms um, and GBAS. Yeah. So... In an effort to be first, mm-hmm. we in the UK and Heathrow yeah. went for microwave landing system and spent a lot of money, and British Airways spent a lot of money equipping mm-hmm. a lot of their aircraft with MLS. But in the end, it was a, it was a dead end. Sure. Yeah. Um, so from a political point of view, yeah. there's, there's, you know, we need to be sure that it's not going to be just Heathrow again. No, it's, it's a, it has to be a global thing. Totally, I understand. Um, so I just, um, uh, it's a very interesting, you know, the thing to talk about though, and, and yeah, yeah. how we try and influence, because there's always an argument not to go and improve things. If things are working okay currently, yeah, yeah. there's, uh, there's always, and there's the, that, yeah. I just remember this discussion in the context of, you know, uh, black boxes uh, sending actively all mm-hmm. the time, mm-hmm. like in the context of MH370 yes. getting lost. Yeah. And there was also this discussion, oh, it's going to take 20 years until every airplane has these broadcasting. I thought, 20 years? Mm. I don't quite understand why this is the case. No. But uh, it's, it's a very conservative industry in this sense also. Yes, yes. And, and, yeah. and uh, you know, without wishing to say what's expected but there are good reasons for that oh yeah yeah and it's absolutely. A, you know and and um you know it's a safety safety yeah. critical industry yeah and, and yeah i i quite willing to accept i get really frustrated with with the rate of the slow rate of change right. yes in in some aspects yeah. i think i think we're getting to the point where um certainly for the major airports with the ele- electronic systems now uh, with the integration you can get and the data that you can get from them uh, it's going to be a, a step change yeah. in in the future. Yeah. Um, but it all at the end, it all comes down to airlines ordering yeah. aircraft that are equipped. Yeah. No. Uh, chicken and, and egg problem. Chicken and egg. These yeah. kinds of things. I mean, I, I one of the 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 groups I I work on is the International GBAS Working Group. So mm-hmm. GBAS is the the GPS uh, landing system, but augmented by ground stations. Yeah. Ground based. Uh, ground based system. augmentation system. Um, and uh, we have a big conference every year 
and the the airports are all there but they don't want to purchase a GBAS system yeah. if they if the airlines sure. don't buy order um Boeing and Airbus aircraft fitted for GBAS yeah but the airlines don't want to order those aircraft unless all yeah. the airports buy GBAS systems so it's um yeah somebody needs to make a first move yeah, yeah. to try and uh, yeah. get that critical mass yeah that would have been a nice closing um uh, kind of discussion but i want to mention one thing um i saw a bunch of cameras installed just below the tower cap um these are used for a kind of remote tower uh, research project yeah, so, kind of so thing, right? we've nats uh, which is the company i work yeah. for uh has uh partnered with a company called searidge um along with nav canada so the the nats equivalent yeah, in yeah. canada have have uh, gone into partnership with with a company called searidge and they provide a lot of uh camera technology and uh integrated systems for remote towers or more commonly now referred to as digital towers right. because they're not necessarily remote from yeah. the airport at which yeah. they're uh, uh or for which they're controlling um so downstairs we have a we call it a digital laboratory so it's it has a video wall of um big 8k screens i think they are mm -hmm. um and the 4k cameras upstairs that you that you just mentioned yeah and we're using that just to see just to experiment basically research and develop procedures and think about how we might use that in the future not just at heathrow but but globally uh, we're working with singapore airport at the moment to develop a, a similar system there um and and next year london city airport is going to have be controlled by a room in the Swanwick Control Center oh, yeah. and not at the airport itself. But still as an experiment. No, oh. that's going to be operational. Oh, okay. That will be oh. operational. Okay. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting and, and the technology is, you know, just advancing really, really quickly now. Uh, so, so potentially, I mean, we're here in a window, in a windowed room, floor to ceiling windows. Yep. If you imagine these are video screens and I'm looking out, looking at the final approach, you could have a radar tag on yeah, the, yeah, on the yeah. window right, as it were right, right. rather than me having to look at a radar right. screen and then out of the window yeah. you could look out of the window which actually is a tv yeah, yeah, screen yeah, yeah. and you've got radar data superimposed on the visual picture augmented reality augmented reality just yeah. so we use the buzzword so um <laughs> so that's very much you know in the future and, yeah. and we're developing sort of techniques and, yeah. and uh yeah. have you have you been in one of these uh, labs i mean is the is the resolution um, good enough so you would say it's the visual impression is, is convincing uh, yes so the one we've got downstairs with 4k cameras right. so looking right. um, it's it's about a 160 degree view I think this is off the top of my head yeah um, and there are 10 4k cameras covering right. that view it's 40,000 pixels all stitched together yeah it looks very good okay um, yeah. it looks very sharp um And the benefit, certainly one of the benefits is cameras now, modern cameras, have a very good low light performance. Mm -hmm. um, you you, ha you only have to watch some of the TV programs of like a, uh, a football match sure. in the evening yeah. Um, yeah. without floodlights or, or for us a cricket match in the UK. <laughs> um, but And you're looking at it and it looks very much like daytime, yeah. but just a bit cloudy. And then actually look out the window and it's almost dark out yeah. of the window. Right. Um, so, no. so improving the, the visual picture... Um, and and with cameras, you can put cameras anywhere. You could put cameras by the side of the runway to look at runway exits. Yeah, this this this, this is this thing, right? So you you uh, you you start thinking about this as a well, let's make the windows digital. 
Yeah. And then yeah. once you do that, you, you say things like, well, you can have the tags directly on the window. You can do low yeah. light yeah. stuff. Yeah. You can do cameras in other places. And, and this kind of this thing, like once it's digital, you can do all these yeah. other things. Yeah. So you, the, the only requirement really there is, is to have cameras that have good enough resolution. So the yeah. visual image is kind of convincing. And then from then on, everything is open. Hmm. And, so. and, you know, there are, there are various uh, questions that need to be answered. As you said, you know we're a very conservative industry. Yeah. What if you a know, camera fails? Need to, you, so camera fails. Uh, the the link fails. Sure. Uh, potentially, you know this this control room could be quite far away from yeah. the actual airport. Yeah. What is the robustness of that link? Yeah. The resilience. Uh, how do you ensure the controllers? Do you get the same impression of the airport out of the camera view than you do at? at the airport so one of the big things for us when we get a new uh, trainee controller is when we're upstairs you have a great view of the whole airport you can very easily start planning ahead on ground and think that that aircraft over that side of the airport when you, when the aircraft gets there he will have to give way to another aircraft which is two miles away the yep. other side of the airport but you can see both yeah you start forming this plan and talking to the pilot saying, you give way to that one, you give way to this one. They can't see each other. Mm. So a very important aspect of our training is to get people out onto the airfield in a car and say, this is what the pilot sees. Uh-huh. You, uh-huh. you can sit up in, uh-huh. in, in your tower right. and have a great plan view of the right. whole airport, but that's not what pilots see. Mm-hmm. You need to put yourself in the pilot's cockpit. Yeah. So as we go to this potential future of, of sitting in a, room with video screens yeah, yeah how what familiarity does that person have with the actual airport that's a noisy place that people don't always hear the first radio call yeah, yeah. Um, all those environmental factors uh that uh, that will be interesting to discover you know how important are they and and do they need addressing and working on yeah. and and that's exactly the sort of thing that we've got this room downstairs for it's a laboratory yeah. for us to experiment with that yeah cool Nice. You seem to be quite active in these researchy kinds of things. Is that typical for all uh, like DFS and other uh, institutions, or is that yeah, Nats? I th- I th- it most is? most uh, large air navigation service okay. providers will will be doing similar uh, research. I think Nats is is quite forward looking um, amongst them. But but yeah, things. Uh, so uh, yeah, the the Norwegian ANSP and, and DFS in Germany yeah. um, are all uh, ENAV in 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 Italy. In area in, in Spain, they're all mm. looking looking at that. Yeah, okay. It's, um, because short of a clean sheet redesign of all the airspace, yeah. which 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 the UK is certainly around London is hoping will will occur because we have very outdated airspace design. Mm-hmm. Um, ironically, with all the routes around in and around London and all the airports to and from those airports in London are for. Uh, this this is going to sound bad, but we are forcing aircraft to fly towards each other because mm-hmm. the routes all are routing over VOR beacons. Oh, Half right. of them aren't there anymore. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's because we're decommissioning sure, them. Yeah, Radio yeah. navigation beacons yeah, that, yeah. Were, that, that, again, are 1940s, 1950s 50s technology. Yeah. So all the routes fly over these waypoints. Yeah. So, for example, there's one over to the west uh, called Compton uh, near Reading. And our departures fly over that point at 6,000 feet. Farmer departures are flying to Compton four, 5,000 feet. Stansted and Luton departures are flying to Compton. 
they all converge over this point. They're separated vertically. Yeah, yeah. So it's safe, but they're all flying towards each other, and then they have to level off, pass over this point, and then only then can they climb and descend once the confliction has passed. Now, if you started from a clean sheet, you would redesign the airspace so you didn't intentionally put aircraft sure. over the same point. You would separate them laterally. How does this fit together with what you said before, that basically every individual aircraft gets told specifically how they should fly? There are still mandatory waypoints. Uh, well, so the the way we um, we work the, the, the terminal control area is that controllers will be passing these headings and, and levels to aircraft on departure and arrivals because they have to to make the system work. Okay. Mm. So so they, mm. they don't allow aircraft to fly over directly overhead Compton Beacon yeah. or the, the, the okay. location. Well, no, the Compton Beacon is still there. Yeah. So they have to tell this one to fly yeah, yeah. 10 degrees right, that one fly 10 degrees left, descend, climb, yeah. turn left, turn right. Yeah. Um, and that creates a lot of workload for the controller. Right. Now, if the controller could just sit back sure. and monitor and, and fly them departure on separate yeah, three-dimensional yeah. trajectories right. or even four-dimensional yeah, trajectories yeah. with time yeah, yeah, through yeah. the airspace, yeah. that would be a lot more efficient right. mm -hmm. and a lot less interaction would be required yeah. from the controller. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but because of the airspace design, yeah. the whole of the London airspace requires a lot of work on the part of the controller right. to, to enable the number of aircraft that we yeah. cope. Last question. Yes. Is the, the busyness of the frequencies also a constraint? Like, you can't can talk be. fast enough. Yes, it can be. Yeah. Um, when it gets busy, we can have some of the highest RT occupancy, as we call it. So the proportion, a given a, yeah. a given length of time, the percentage of that that is actually a radio call is being made, either from the controller or the yeah. pilot. Yes, it, it can mm -hmm. be very, very high. Uh, and actually, ironically, what, what we train controllers to do is when it gets busy, is yeah. to slow down. You mentioned that last time. Yeah, yeah. 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 To avoid I, I repetitions actually, yeah. and stuff. Avoid yeah, repetitions. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. and yeah. it's yeah. very difficult sometimes yeah. to, to take that on board as a yeah. trainee yeah. because, you know, your heart rate starts to increase sure. and you think, I've got these five instructions I need to transmit to these aircraft. Yeah. Bang, 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 bang. Yeah. Um, but then three of them will come back and ask you to repeat. So, yeah. so it, but yes, RT occupancy is, is, uh, is a factor. Yeah. Uh, it can be the limiting factor sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but but generally you so if you're aware that it's that it's getting to that point you would maybe modify your instructions rather than giving one long one mm -hmm. uh, you might give a shorter one that only taxes it halfway on the whole length of the taxi and then you'd have okay you'd have to go in but it's spreading the the rt out over time rather yeah. than giving uh, a few longer instructions I could imagine yeah. shorter ones are also less likely for the cockpit crew to require repeat parts yes. because they yeah. don't catch everything. And, and most of the flight crew that will fly in here understand that Heathrow is a busy place. Yeah, so they're shut um, up. And, and, and yeah, they're, they're <laughs> concise yeah. coming back, um, ideally. Yeah. Uh, that, that, yeah. yeah. Uh, most of them are, yeah. yeah. All right, Adam. Cool. This was, once again, My pleasure. very, very interesting. And I'm, I'm going to say thank you and goodbye with little parentheses because you might speak again towards the yes. end of the week. Well, we're just not going to talk about it now. But um, so for now, <laughs> thank, thank you, you very much. Uh, my very pleasure, cool. Marcus. Absolutely. Thank you. Very cool. Okay. So um, normally we start by uh, me asking our guests to introduce themselves, but I think we can skip this. Okay, um, I guess maybe um, <laughs> I could explain my background as regards to... React. Absolutely, would have been my next so, question. So, so I started uh, four years ago at the Royal International Air Tattoo 
uh, air show in uh, RAF Fairford, which is between uh, to about an hour west of London, hour and a half west of London. It's generally thought of as the largest or biggest uh, international military air show in the world. Uh, I think this year we have about nearly 300 aircraft either displaying or on the static park. It's run for charitable uh, intent for the RAF uh, Charitable Trust and alongside other events we generally raise around about £1 million every year for the RAF Charitable Trust which goes on to good causes uh, related to the to the Royal Air Force. Uh, so I've been, yes, I've been doing this for four years. As a controller, uh, we volunteer, so we take uh, these, our, our days off and our leave uh, days that we take. Um, we're a, a bunch of people from various different airports. There's a few of us from Heathrow, Farnborough, Manchester, uh, Stansted, Guernsey, Duxford, and, uh, and a few personnel from the Royal Air Force as well. And uh, we, all the controllers are civilian. Some of our uh, ops staff are, are military. And we all get together every year for, for five or six days in Adare Fairford. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very rewarding experience. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talked at Heathrow, you said that everybody basically has to qualify for a particular position. Now, I guess it's basically similar here. Do you have to do some kind of training to be able to fill the, these roles? Yes. Yeah, so on your first year as an RAF Fairford uh, REACT controller, then you do go through a training plan. You sit with an instructor and you will gain experience there. And then our regulator, the Civil Aviation Authority, will visit and perform an, an examination board, both uh, practical, so they will sit next to you and, and observe you controlling traffic. And also they will perform an oral examination, uh, an oral board, so they will ask you questions about the procedures. Now at Heathrow, that training might take 18 months. At RF Fairford, that training takes two days. So okay. You, so you spend two days training, um, having had the procedures and revising and, and looking at the the theory. You will uh, arrive here on the Tuesday for another brief and refresher training. Wednesday you will train. Thursday you will train. Friday morning the civil aviation will arrive, and you will have your exam. And uh, all being well, you will pass, as I did back in 2016, I think it was, or 2015, and then. Friday afternoon, you are controlling traffic on your own. So it's a very accelerated um, program. Of course, all the controllers are experienced controllers in their own right from their own airports. Uh, but it is it is quite uh, an accelerated training uh, environment, um, and uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's very hard work. Why isn't the controlling at Riyadh done by the regular Fairford uh, Tower crew? Uh, one of the reasons is there isn't a regular Fairford ah. tower crew because RAF Fairford, as we sit here today currently, is a standby airfield used by the United States Air Force. So it's, it's only, it only temporarily hosts aircraft on detachment maybe four or five times a year uh, for maybe up to a week or two weeks. When there are aircraft based at the airfield temporarily, then American air traffic controllers from the United States Air Force will be detached from other airports in the UK or other airfields. For example, Mildenhall and, and Lakenheath, generally Mildenhall at the moment, they will travel down and stay down here. There is one permanent member of air traffic control staff at the airport, at uh, RAF Fairford permanently, 
but uh, the the arrangement that's been uh, developed over the uh, the nearly 50 years actually of of the international air tattoo and now the royal international air tattoo is that a group of civilian volunteers uh, will will come and effectively take possession of the airport alongside our our volunteer airport ops uh, staff uh, that also work for the charity and uh, and we've developed these sets of procedures which are very different from the the normal day-to-day RAF Fairford that exists for 360 days the other 360 days of the year okay so um, before we talk about these procedures fundamentally it's the same as everywhere I guess you have a tower guy a ground guy you have probably some approach person and then probably some special people that regard to the display um, at the air show days Uh, yes so effectively from our point of view there are three the airport will operate in three different modes there will be an arrival mode an air show mode and then a departure mode so for for air traffic control yes there's a there's a there's a tower controller so looking after the runway and anything airborne in the local vicinity there is a ground controller looking after ground movements including vehicles and aircraft and there is a, a coordinator liaison position uh, we have RAF Bryce Norton which is a, a RAF, uh, Royal Air Force Base, five to six miles to our northeast, which is very close. The approaches of the two airfields intersect, so there is a great deal of coordination. And the other issue is RAF Fairford does not have its own approach radar control. All the approach radar functions are conducted from the RAF Bryce Norton approach room. So again, in the control tower, we have no radar screen. We are okay. literally a visual control room looking out of the window. So we have a lot of coordination with the radar controllers at Bryce Norton who are positioning the RAF Fairford traffic onto the ILS or visually uh, into the circuit. So we have, as I said, we have the arrival, airshow and departure modes. On the arrival, in the arrival mode, which is generally the Wednesday and Thursday before the airshow, we will be uh, welcoming all the visiting aircraft for static and also uh, the display aircraft. On top of that number will be the support aircraft that will arrive with, for example, a display aircraft. They will um, unload engineering equipment and, and possibly even you know, lots of merchandise to sell to, right. the, to the customers at the air show, to the spectators. And then those support aircraft, transport aircraft, might well depart either to Bryce Norton, another airfield in, in the UK. Some will even fly hundreds, possibly thousands of miles back home, and then they'll come back after the airshow has finished. Uh, the other interesting fa- facet of the uh, arrival days is that while we are welcoming all those inbound aircraft, we also have practiced airshow displays and what we call validation displays. So for aircraft outside the UK that... Um, might have an airshow routine designed under different airshow safety rules than exist in the UK. Our own safety organisation have to observe those those displays flown either in the UK, here at Fairford, or in another country. And uh, some of the display items have to display in front of our safety organisation, which we call the Flying Control Committee. So that committee is made up of Uh, maybe uh, a handful of very experienced airshow pilots themselves and they will effectively sign off a display item 
as suitable for display in the UK and at RAF Fairford specifically. And and that probably uh, relates to altitudes, minimum altitudes, yes. and distance from the crowd line, stuff like that. Exactly, distance from the crowd line, uh, altitudes, speeds, manoeuvres. So in the UK, generally only uh, a very few uh, display acts are allowed to overfly the crowd. So for example, the red arrows overfly the crowd from the rear to start the display. Um, and there are one or two other acts that, that are permitted to do that. In general, though, it's not permitted. Why are they permitted to do it? I don't know, but, okay. but, but essentially it's a combination of experience level, training, level of practice that's, that's undergone. Generally, it's the military uh, pilots who are permitted to do this. I mean, the Red Arrows can perform up to three practice displays a, year, a, a day. Um, so... Uh, so it's it's all based on on that, and um, so a, a, a more uh, normal display act or a single-engined uh, fighter jet would not be permitted to do that crowd arrival. Uh, so there are various issues um, and specific procedures for the UK that have come in, in the last few years, given the events at, at other air shows uh, in the UK. The Hunter problem, yes, right? Yes, that's that's one of them. Uh, so so the regulations have been modified. Uh, to take account of those sorts of uh, incidents. And um, so an air show item that would design... So, for example, the the uh, United States Air Force displays would design their display routines according to the American rules that exist in America for air shows in America, which are different to the UK. So they would have to come up with a specific display routine that would comply with the UK regulations and as I said, the, the Flying Control Committee would have to observe that display specifically. Yeah, okay. And practice is just uh, pilots come here and say, I, I'd like to try it out. I don't know the environment, the yes. area. Yeah. Yes, exactly that. And it's not just for the pilot. It also helps us in air traffic control um, to determine how long each display item is in terms of time, the duration. So... Uh, and that helps build the program. If the program, if the display program is designed in a certain way, and you allocate ten minutes to a display item, but during practice it takes fifteen minutes, then either we have to cut maneuvers out of the display routine, or we allocate more time to that aircraft and maybe move the other items occurring after it. So there's also a level of um, information that that we in air traffic control gain from it. And also up in the, the control tower during the air show, we have somebody called the flying display director who is not an air traffic controller, uh, but might, be, might have been in the past or by training, but their role at the air show is not air traffic control. It's effectively the designer of the air show routine and, and in terms of which act displays when and how they start and the the sort of the running order of the air show and they have the safety accountability also for deciding to perhaps cancel one item or promote another item through the order so for example this morning as we speak we've had some aircraft uh, go unserviceable so there is a discussion then should we change the order should we run with the order and leave a gap so it's that sort of discussion that the flying display director leads and decides upon and then disseminates the the uh, the information down Because you can't necessarily easily pull everything a little 10 minutes up because pilots might still be preparing, checklisting and stuff. So you can't just go now. No. It doesn't work. Correct. Um, the, the, the pilots 
might not be even at the aircraft. If uh, yeah. if it's 40 minutes away, they might still be on the minibus to the aircraft. So, so there's only certain um, actions that can be taken uh, to, to change the order. And obviously, in, a, in an aviation environment, it's safety critical. Making changes at short notice, regardless of what those changes are, can be disruptive. So we always have that in the back of our minds. Right, okay. Um, so how is the collaboration or the coordination between the, I was going to say Airbus, the uh, display director mm -hmm. and uh, the ATC? So would, would he tell them, okay, now I need to get the whatever C-27 launched into a holding pattern, please make space and then you can do the next, you know, how does this work? So ideally that will all have been planned yeah. in advance. So a month before the air show, uh, the, the organizers air traffic control, the flying display director, the flying control committee, and the, the, the team that's the ground ops team that are responsible for parking the aircraft and looking after the aircraft on the each apron will all get together and they actually call it the longest day in the planning process because it starts at about six o'clock in the morning and can go on past midnight. And basically they, they thrash out all of the combinations of the, the flying display program and, and generally the order of the flying display and it's at that point ideally that we would determine this so for example if aircraft a would prefer an airborne start to their airshow display from let's say for example crowd rear then it makes sense to get them airborne maybe 15 minutes or 30 minutes before their actual display slot so they get airborne go away to hold and then we have another airshow display that might take off and land straight away And then when that lands, we can then bring the airborne start aircraft in. So ideally, we would sort out all of that coordination in advance. And then on the day, tactically, just as this is about to happen, the flying display director should only then, and the air traffic control, coordinate and say, yes, we're running on the plan. This will do this, this will do this. And so everybody has the same mental picture of what's going on. And that's very important. It's only really when something unexpected happens, such as a technical problem or an aircraft running late. The other thing to bear in mind at that point for the ground controller is where aircraft are parking and where aircraft are, they might land after a display and park in a different location. Or for example, yesterday we had a, a fly pass celebrating the 70th anniversary of NATO with four F-16s, one from Norway, one from Denmark, one from uh, Belgium and one from the Netherlands. Three, And they were departing formation. Three of those F-16s were on one side of the runway. The fourth was on another side of the runway that required to backtrack the whole length of the runway. So it's issues like that that we need to think about maybe an hour to 30 minutes ahead of it actually happening so that we can develop a plan of how these aircraft are going to get to the right location in the right order at the holding point ready for departure not not too different from what we talked about Heathrow when British Airways is towing their stuff to the terminal yes it, it's a very similar problem with a very different aircraft but uh, yes it's a very similar planning problem yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned that uh, when you take over this airfield, you redesignate taxiways. You basically build a new kind of custom airfield. Why is that, and how does that work? Yeah, so so RAF Airford obviously is is an American airbase, and it conforms to the United States Air Force naming conventions on taxiways, uh, mm -hmm. um, and it could be complicated for a especially a non English speaking as a first language uh, pilot, which many of our display pilots are. 
so so we effectively come in and on the Tuesday evening before the air show we will when we take over control of the airfield we will drive out and change the runway signs or change the taxiway signs so you actually put physical get, signs yes we put covers over the signs to that so what might have been taxiway bravo zulu one will now be taxiway alpha and bravo zulu nine will be taxiway bravo to make it simple we publish um, in an aip supplement that then we send out to uh, all the flight crew coming in and out of, of RAF Air for during the air show period we send out temporary ground charts, arrival procedure charts, departure, um, standard instrument departure charts. Uh, so effectively, it's the same information that any pilot would have flying into any other large airport. But this just exists for the five or six or seven days of the airshow period. Interesting. <laughs> um, the... If I understood this correctly from what I heard on the speaker, first of all, the announcer is not at all related to what happens in the tower here. Correct. The the commentator for the for the crowd is in a different location. However, we do have a hotline telephone to call them because we do try, if we have the, the time to do so, to keep them updated with what's going on. So if an aircraft is airborne and has a technical problem and appears effectively disappears from view from the crowd for five minutes rather than them wondering what's going on we will tell the commentator what's happening and then they can feed it back to the crowd uh, so so the commentator is not in the control tower but we do have a close link to them to inform them of what's going on okay as as happened this morning with the f-16 yes yes that's true um also i heard that there is a safe well at least for some uh, demonstrations like for example i heard it in the, the frigid ricolori i think there is a ground uh, team member safety observer who is probably not part of the committee is that guy here yes yes so so we have the flying control committee which are those uh, experienced display pilots who are looking at the two the aircraft in terms of how close to the crowd they get and how low they get but yes you're right some of the the display teams and items will also have their own ground observer looking at the the lateral limits of the display and how low aircraft are getting and they might well be talking to the pilot on a separate frequency not on the air traffic control frequency but on a, a separate uh, other frequency that, that they use sometimes they will be in the tower sometimes they will be on the balcony with the flying control committee sometimes they will be uh, the other side of the airfield I remember when the, the Thunderbirds came in, which I know you've got recent experience with, a little bit. The, um, the United States <laughs> Air Force uh, demonstration team, uh, all of our air traffic control communications were actually done through a person on the ground, and then they would relay those to the, to the team in the air. Uh, so, so it can get quite complicated. Also, recently with the Ukrainian uh, Su-27 display item that we've had the last few years at Riyadh, We have a Ukrainian interpreter in the tower, and again, they are communicating with the aircraft on a separate frequency, and we just verbally pass our instructions across to the to the person standing next to us, the interpreter. So I will just turn to my left and say, "Flanker is cleared for takeoff," and then he will speak in Ukrainian to the uh, to the display pilot. Okay, interesting. This can also just work because during a display, I guess, not much else is going on, so it can't be a busy environment then. No, what we try and uh, sterilize the frequency whenever the uh, the air show is going on. So when there is an active display aircraft flying in front of the crowd, we minimize the amount of radio transmissions that are made, even to the extent 
that possibly if an aircraft is holding a few miles away, waiting for the current display act to, to complete its act, that aircraft, while airborne, might only be talking to our ground control frequency um, in order to keep that aircraft off the display frequency, which is up the, the tower frequency. Basically to not disturb the pilot. Correct. Yes, the last thing you want, if an aircraft's flying near to the crowd, 230 meters away from the crowd at 500 knots upside down, you don't want them hearing discussions on the radio that don't relate to him or her. Okay, yeah. Um, last question about that aspect. Um, you seem to be using a lot of follow-me cars. That seems to be more than on most airports these days. Is that related to the fact that it's kind of temporary and doesn't make sense to come up with procedures and stuff? Yes, uh, so there's a few reasons for that. One, it's because the, the airfield is temporary and effectively no aircrew have uh, a level of familiarity with the airport that's that's very high. But also the fact that um, the the leader vehicles will be in contact with the the ops, our own REAT ops uh, team, who know exactly to the centimeter where these aircraft are parking. Uh, I'm sure you've seen when you're walking around, some of the aircraft are parked very close to each other, and we need to position them with accuracy. And the flight crew, they might know which apron they're parking in. They won't know their exact location. That will be down to the marshallers. So rather than having to then continually relay in information through the air traffic control frequencies, we position a follow-me car in front of each arrival when they vacate the runway, and that follow-me knows exactly where that aircraft is parking. So we just tell the aircraft to follow the leader vehicle in front of them, and it's, it's far easier and less, uh, far less chance of being misunderstood. Okay. Which of the days is more challenging, the, the show days or the, uh, I guess, departures, maybe not that critical? Talk about that a bit. Yeah, so each, each mode, arrivals, air show and departures, has, has its own challenges. I think the air show, uh, so that for us the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, is uh, theoretically less complicated Although when there are changes, as we've seen today, as we saw on Friday with the weather, as we saw yesterday with, with some aircraft uh, going unserviceable, then that can be complicated. And there's also the added dimension of having the display director in the control tower with the, with the added coordination there. Arrivals is challenging purely because of we have the lack of radar. So our situational awareness as, as controllers is purely what we can see out of the window. What we have on our paper uh, paper strip boards, not electronic. <laughs> I nearly yeah. made a slip there. Yeah. We have paper control strips now for aircraft in at Fairford. And uh, so it's a purely old school visual control room. And that can be very challenging with the requirement of having practice and validation displays. Yeah, yeah. Aircraft on arrival are given slot times to arrive at Fairford at, at certain times to ensure they de-conflict with practice and, arrival and uh, validation displays. When aircraft are coming from potentially Eastern Europe um, and even from North America, sometimes aircraft can arrive early or late. Uh, for, for many reasons and trying to slot them in between those displays which are really fixed uh, is, is challenging in itself and then departures can be very very challenging because we can have up to I think last year over 350 aircraft all want to depart within the first two or three hours <laughs> of Monday morning Uh, and it's uh, and it can get very difficult for us or very complicated for us to try and untangle the static park 
aircraft because of the physical constraints of the yeah. apron the ones nearer the runway exits have to go first uh, so if one of those goes um, unserviceable then that blocks in a whole maybe 20 or 30 other aircraft so then they have to be moved so it does create or or maybe the first one because it's adjoining the airways system as a as effectively a commercial aircraft would do it then has a slot time which we spoke about at Heathrow and and has a half an hour delay but the one behind it has a slot time which is in five minutes time so we have to try and maybe backtrack one down the runway and then vacate whereas the second one backtracks all the way around and then takes off so it can be very complicated to try and uh, launch all of these aircraft in in a few hours and and by mid-afternoon on Monday all of our aircraft will have departed. It's also the day after the air show, so I guess the eagerness and the uh, adrenaline is kind of gone and everybody wants to get home. And so there might be, you know, the emotions might not be quite the same as when people arrive to such an event. Very true. And uh, as human factors such as fatigue and that and that come down after the air show is, is very, very uh, important. And we need to be very careful that that, that doesn't affect us. It's, it's a very... Uh, and it's part of our training uh, for the air show uh, that, that all of us, not just air traffic controllers, but the crowd uh, stewards, the marshallers, the leader vehicle drivers, everybody understands that we need to be very, very careful on Monday that we don't uh, take on a challenge that is actually too great. And we need to, we need to understand that, that if an aircraft can't go, it can't go. You know, nothing's going to go wrong if it stays until Tuesday. What we will tend to do at the end of Monday is hand back the airfield to the United States Air Force. And for the duration of the air show, they always send a few controllers from Mildenhall down. They won't work in terms of talk to aircraft, but they will be here to support us. And their engineering uh, staff will be here as well in case we have any technical issues with the air traffic control equipment. But they will take over on Tuesday. And if there are one or two stragglers who perhaps couldn't depart on the Monday because of technical reasons, they will depart on Tuesday under the control of the United States Air Force. Okay. Hmm. Um, you mentioned before that this is good old, good old uh, kind of analog uh, hand-made uh, ATC-ing. Um, is that why you do it? I mean, it's your vacation. Yes, that, that is one of the reasons I do it. Uh, as we spoke at Heathrow, uh, my work at Heathrow when I'm controlling is very proceduralized, lots of procedures, but, but very similar aircraft. Virtually 99% are jet airliners. And because of the nature of the systemization that we have, they are all doing similar things. They all flying the same way or you know on on precise routes and aircraft are coming down the ILS all nicely spaced by approach radar here for example a few days ago I had um, an air a, a, a C-17 backtracking the runway while a fast jet was lining up I had another four tornadoes in the overhead breaking into a circuit and uh, a Cessna 152 on a left base waiting to come in as well so it's um i i would equate it to maybe a a, a modern airbus pilot going gliding on his days <laughs> off yeah. because it's 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 theoretically the same it's flying an aircraft for me it's controlling traffic but it's completely different and it's and it's it's black and white it's it's um it's a lot more fun uh just controlling and there's no um and there's It's a lot of thinking on your feet 
there's while we plan of course but a lot more things can uh change in this environment than at Heathrow so uh yeah I I really love it it's the highlight of my of my work year really you also get to see the the display yes what was your favorite uh display item yesterday or today uh I really like the F18s um, I think they're they're really good. I think the Swiss one for me yesterday was was a very good display with uh, uh, its uh, you know high angle of attack uh, ability, um, and I I love the Harrier as well. So seeing the the Spanish Harriers was uh, was very good, and I think today they're finishing the display, so that will be something to look out for. Yeah. So for me, the the F eighteen was yesterday also the highlight. Today I did the Swiss didn't fly it, I think, but the Finnish did a similar yes, display. So yes. yeah. yeah. Oh, by the way, uh, regarding spending your vacation, your wife doesn't uh, complain about that? No, uh, because this year, for the first year, my wife is joining me here. So so she went through that very short training period that I discussed earlier. So on Friday, she was examined by the Civil Aviation Authority and, and was given her temporary air traffic control license for RAF Fairford, which runs out on Monday evening. So, uh, yes, so she's joining me this year. Uh, of course, she works at Farnborough, so every two years she has the Farnborough Air Show. So I think the plan will be she will only join us here at Fairford on a, on a non-Farnborough Air Show year. Right. So she will alternate between RF Fairford and Farnborough. And, of course, people obviously noticed she's a controller as well, yes, which yes. might contribute to the fact that spending your free time as controlling isn't that much of a problem. Um, two more questions. One, who do you think has the bigger challenge, you guys for traffic in the air or the police for traffic on the ground for the uh, spectators? Ooh. Um, well, that's a very good question. I would probably say coping with the spectators. Uh, I think uh, at least us in the control tower we're speaking to people who um, they're professionals and they're trying to get the we're all working towards the same aim um, so uh, so yes I'd, I would like to stay in the tower <laughs> if you're offering me a job as a crowd steward no I'd like to stay in the tower thank <laughs> you yeah yeah it's again feel, again feels like this island of quiet here yes. um, I, I came here with the with the shuttle bus from Swindon and um was an interesting experience because yesterday the bus driver didn't find the way and he stopped called somebody you know ah. okay and then he he went on through really small back roads and i was kind of comparing that with um the air show in the states recently where of course every stupid little road has four lanes and here it's like more or less a one lane back road through some three house village that you know so it's an interesting experience that part um, last question: Who is Director Krennic, and why does he show up on Twitter all the time? Uh, well, that was just so. Director Krennic was a character from Star Wars Rogue One, and I've got a little Lego character that sometimes I, I highlight in photos that I put on social media. Uh, that all started, uh, gosh, about two years ago now, when I was going to uh, the Reno Air Races in September uh, two years ago, and I thought it would just be a a funny little thing. Uh, to make me take more photographs of where I was I was going on holiday on my own and I wanted Louise my wife or for me to to keep communicating with Louise and let her know where I was and what I was doing so I thought this was a, a good little mechanism to allow me to to put lots of photos up and and show her where I was and what I was doing and uh, it seems to have um, snowboarded slightly and uh, wherever I go now I do get comments once people know it who I am and and uh, my identity on social media on Twitter 
especially that uh, I do get the odd question saying, oh, where's Director Krennic? Ironically, this morning, we actually had Darth Vader and uh, Boba Fett and uh, a few stormtroopers up in the up in the VCR here at Riyadh. So, um, uh, yes, Director Krennic wasn't completely pleased to see uh, Darth Vader. Uh, <laughs> so he was a bit disappointed that uh, he was gate crashing. <laughs> yeah, right. So, uh, so these are kind of people in costumes from walking around here yes. for some reason. Yes. yes, I think I think they do it as, as a bit of a entertainment for the crowd, and uh, especially if it's a bit wet and maybe low cloud and, and aircraft aren't flying, which thankfully we don't have today. But uh, certainly on Friday, I think they were they were working very hard. Right now, it seems like the the door beep has gone continuous. Yes, I think someone's holding the door open at the moment. So uh, yes, <laughs> all right. So um, I think this is a good time to thank you for real now because at the end of Heathrow I didn't really because of today. So thank you very much for taking the time. I thought this was very interesting. I know that you've been listening for Omega Tau for a while, and it's always nice if, mm. if if listeners become guests and stuff. So thank you very much. No, thank you very much, Marcus. Thank you. All right. So that's it. Thanks again, Adam, for taking the time and for getting me onto Heathrow Tower. I was a bit tired that day, but uh, it was a. Very cool experience. Also took a few nice pictures there, which I probably will post along with this episode. All right. Um, the rest of you, thanks for listening. Let me know what you think. As usual, rate the episode, provide feedback, reviews on Amazon. No, not on Amazon, on iTunes. Very much appreciate it. And uh, talk to you in about two weeks, probably with a German episode again. Ciao. Hello, Markus here for Omega Tau. Omega Tau is an independent and non-commercial podcast produced by Nora Ludwig and me, Markus Fötter. We are on the web at omegataupodcast.net. You can also find us on Facebook, Google+, and Twitter under the handle Omega Tau Podcast. We love to hear from you through a comment on the website, a post via our social network channels, or via an email at feedback at omegataupodcast.net. We also always appreciate recommendations of Omega Tau to your friends directly or through social media. Omega Tau is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Non-Derivative License 3.0. This means that you can freely share the content, but you cannot use it for commercial purposes and you cannot distribute derivative works. You always have to attribute the source, omegataupodcast.net. Any quotations or citations of our work are perfectly fine, of course. For more details on the license, see creativecommons.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast and talk to you next time. 